still sunny Portland, Oregon. Yes, it's still sunny. Uh, We're waiting for the monsoon to come. This will be our first winter here in the Northwest, so we're expecting the worst. Uh, But uh, as of today, September 21st, I think, the first day of autumn, uh, it's still sunny and warm and beautiful. Although I notice leaves are starting to change and they change pretty quickly up here. Uh, So there is that impending sense of Something's coming. The dark clouds are coming. Uh, Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. That uh, funky, crazy, spacey music there at the beginning is um, brought to us through the kindness and generosity of Mark McComber and his band Basin and Range. Check them out. I was thinking it might be fun to um, just use something a little different much as I love Carsey, uh, and I want, and definitely want to keep Carsey's song Smoke Alarm in the outro, I was thinking maybe switch up the intro every once in a while, give it a different sound. So let me know what you think of that. If you think I should keep it, think I should go back to the Smoke Alarm intro, think I should do something different every week. I don't know. You know, I have to be careful about copyrights and all that sort of stuff. So I uh, don't want to get too crazy. Um, anyway, first 15 minutes of this podcast, I I know you've heard me say this before, but there's a little weirdness with the microphone. I got a new microphone, uh, and what happened was that, uh, it's the first time I used it on this particular episode, and I had the headphones plugged into the microphone, so I was hearing like really clear, nice and loud conversation. But I was watching the the peak monitors on the computer, and it wasn't uh, it wasn't peaking. It didn't look as loud as it sounded. And it took me fifteen minutes before I realized that what had happened was that it was using the speak the uh, microphone in the computer uh, to record, even though I had the other microphone plugged in. So. It's it's not bad quality. It just sounds sort of distant. And then 15 minutes into it, you'll hear it gets significantly better. So uh, apologies for that. But honestly, you probably wouldn't even notice it if I didn't uh, tell you about it. But uh, that explains the change in sound quality 15 minutes in. This week's uh, episode is a conversation with Thaddeus Russell. If you're a longtime listener, you heard the first conversation I had with him a year or so ago. Very interesting dude. He's a renegade historian. He wrote a book called Renegade History of the United States, I think. Uh, very interesting book where he talks about race relations and the it's sort of something like A People's History of the USA, the great Howard Zinn book, which looks at the uh, the history of the United States from the perspective of the losers, right? Because history is always written by the winners, as they say, which in this case is white upper class men. And so Howard Zinn said, let's look at history from the perspective of women, of black people, of Indians, and so on, uh, and the poor, and uh, everyone else, essentially, right? 
and uh, it's a fantastic book, highly recommended. And uh, Thad Russell's book is sort of in that same vein where he's saying, let's look at aspects of history that the conventional historians have ignored. And uh, it's a very entertaining read. All sorts of great stuff about race relations in colonial America, which were very much more relaxed than you would imagine, or certainly than I did. Um, you know, a lot of uh, interracial marriage going on. And, and uh, uh, you know, the poor always have um, much freer lives than historians generally show us, right? We read the history of Rome. We're reading about upper-class literate people generally. We read the history of the Victorian uh, era in, in England what you're reading about there is upper-class rich people. So this idea, for example, that Victorians were um, very sexually repressive and restricted, that's true of the upper, upper class. But of, the, of everyone else, it's not true. So we apply this, uh, this sort of depiction of certain eras uh, universally but in fact, it's really only accurate for a very small segment of the population. So in Victorian times, there are all sorts of orgies going on. Prostitution was rampant. There were, you know, casual um, street sex, you know, people fucking on the corner. There's all sorts of stuff going on. Uh, but you don't hear about that. What you hear about are the, you know, starch collars and the, you know, the sort of silly waistcoats and, you know, people putting draperies on their tables because they were offended by the legs of tables and chairs. That's true, by the way. You think I'm making that up? It's not. They were afraid that the tables, the legs of the tables and the chairs would excite sexual responses. So that's why you still see little curtains hanging um, to cover the, the legs of sofas and chairs and things. That's what that was about. I mean, so you've got the, you know, the extreme upper class sort of expressing this heightened libido through trying to avoid any indication of eroticism, much like in the Middle East today, you've got, you know, women walking around covered from head to foot because they're afraid if, you know, if a man saw a woman's ankle, he'd go into a frenzy of lust, right? So... The covering, the 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 blocking of this sort of energy is itself an expression of the energy, right? And similarly, in the Victorian period, you had these idiots, not to be judgmental, uh, putting draperies on their tables and chairs because, you know what, you're going to fuck your sofa or something. I don't know. It's kind of ridiculous if you ask me. But that is the way things work, right? So I'm constantly on alert for the moment in American society when anyone who is vehemently anti-gay marriage, for example, is sort of immediately assumed to be a closeted homosexual, right? Or, you know, where these, where we recognize that any sort of extreme position on the way other people live their lives is probably uh, fueled by some deep inner conflict that's unresolved in the person who takes that extreme position. 
Um, anyway, that's that's my my thought for the day. Now you can apply that to all sorts of places. Um, you know, uh, certainly, I think that you know the, this idea that when we repress a natural energy, what happens is it becomes uh, it's under pressure, right? And any energy that's contained builds up pressure whether it's a volcano building up pressure until it bursts or it's a you know a, a piston firing an explosion inside a you know a cylinder that drives your car whatever it is when you put uh, energy in constrained when you constrain energy what you do is you create explosions and uh, I've been thinking about that in terms of recent news in the United States with all of these um, abuse scandals in the NFL, in the American Football League, where uh, all these things are coming up now where you've got um, particularly abuse um, of women being uh, a major issue. And it's not just an issue for football players, although these are guys who spend every day slamming into things into other people and and expressing cultivating their sort of violence and aggression uh for a living um but but this is something i think that is rampant in american society it's uh it's also a problem in spanish society and and many societies around the world and i've often thought that there's an underappreciated aspect of this problem, um, which people really don't talk about. And I'll probably get myself in trouble for talking about it today. Uh, I'm going to be talking about it. I'm writing about it in this book as well. So what the hell? Um, But I think that there is an underappreciated rage against women that is cultivated in men by uh, the sexual repression that is still endemic in American society. I think that what happens is for a lot of boys, they become sexual beings when they're 14, 15 years old. Now, I know from a woman's perspective, they're not necessarily sexual beings. They're, you know, pimply, skinny, braces-wearing dorks. But from the perspective of that 15-year-old boy, they are pretty much a hundred percent focused on sex. That's pretty much all they can think about. Testosterone levels are peaking. They are um, quite literally drunk on testosterone. And yet they're in a position in their lives because of the way society is structured where they have, most boys at that age have pretty much 0% chance of um, being in a healthy, happy, relaxed sexual relationship. And so there's a huge amount of frustration that builds up. A lot of, a lot of guys are looking, you know, from 14 or 15 until what? Until they go to college, maybe 18, 19, um, that they're either going to have far less uh, of a sex life than they would like or no sex life at all if you're not counting masturbation and even masturbation you know there's all this guilt and shame associated with that that's a long time when you're that age to be so um 
focused on something that you cannot have. And I think that that experience generates rage in a lot of these guys. And some of these guys aren't going to get laid ever, right? Some of these guys are going to be 30 and they're still going to be waiting. And the problem is the more obsessed you get with it, the harder it is to to get because You know, sex, like so many other things in life, is something that becomes more available to you the less desperately you're chasing it. And I I had a conversation with Neil Strauss once when we first met. He's the author of The Game, which is, uh, you know, as most of you will know, is a sort of a seminal book in, in teaching men how some techniques for how to deal with women. And some people would say they're manipulative techniques and they're, they're, um, you know, not, uh, not, uh, evolved in a psychological sense. You know, people have different opinions about that. I, you can listen to my conversation with Neil where we talk about that, uh, in the archives. But what he said was, he said, uh, he said, you had sex before you were 15, didn't you? I said, well, yeah, how did you know that? He said, well, you can always tell guys who have sex before they're 15 are relaxed around women. Guys who haven't had sex with with girls until after then, they start to develop um, a lot of discomfort around women because this rage starts building up. Whether you call it rage, frustration, confusion, self-loathing, it expresses in so many different ways. And yeah, I, I was lucky in that sense. But still, even then, I, I still felt it. I felt confusion. I felt yearning. I felt frustration. I felt all the, you know, what's wrong with me. And in my life, a lot of it got channeled intellectually. I was interested in women and how women worked and how they thought and, you know, what turned them on and what did this and what did that and you know and now here I am I wrote this book and you know I'm the sex guy at this point but uh other guys you know they channel it differently they channel it like I'm going to make so much damn money that any woman will want to be with me or I'm going to become famous or I'm going to learn to play guitar I'm going to be a rock star and that'll attract women so I think there's this period where where guys are like trying to figure out how the hell am I going to get this thing that I want so bad and I can't have now. And it it shapes their lives. Um, and in some cases, it shapes their lives in anger and in derision. And, you know, you listen to these rap, rap lyrics, you know, uh, too short, you know, bitches ain't shit. Now I made my point. There's this dismissal of women. There's this, you know, at the same time, they're singing about how they're, they're they got all this money and they're you know power and they're so cool and they but you know hey bitches I don't give a shit about bitches right it's it's an expression every bit as much as those curtains on chair legs it's an expression of frustration it's an ex, it's a sort of distorted uh, convoluted expression of something that could be natural and clean and energizing and happy and mutually uh, beneficial that that gets twisted and distorted and comes out in a sad 
sick and violent way. And so, you know, you see uh, what's going on in the NFL, which has always been going on in the NFL, and it's going on all over the place. Uh, And it's just getting more attention now. But we have to, I think, if we're going to address this, we need to look at the underlying causes of this anger at women. What is it? Why? Why do so many men feel um, this frustration and anger toward women? And I think teenage sexual frustration is an underappreciated part of it. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying men are the victims here. I'm not trying to pull that card. I'm, you know, all I'm saying is I think that this frustration, which is so common to so many teenage boys' lives, is a big part of the issue. And maybe, maybe now that teenage boys are growing up with access to easy access to, to porn, uh, maybe that will take the edge off this. And if you think I'm talking out my ass here, it, there's a, uh, quite a bit of research showing that when the internet became available in various cultures around the world, um, reported rape cases dropped dramatically in every one of those cultures. So there is some evidence for thinking that uh, the easy availability of porn deflects some of that anger and aggression and uh, you know sexual sexual predatory behavior. Um, let's hope that maybe teenage boys growing up now are a lot less frustrated and uh, and that they'll be more friendly and relaxed around women and that we won't see this sort of thing uh, continuing. Here's hoping. This episode of Tangentially Speaking is brought to you by Ting, the cell phone service that charges you for what you use. That's it. That's all they charge you for. How many calls did you make? How many texts did you send? How many megabytes did you download? No package, no bullshit where you're paying for stuff you don't use. They just charge you for what you use. I, I spend about 32 bucks a month, I think. That was my last bill with Ting. Um, you know, and that's unlimited everything. So if you, uh, you know, in some months, like I'm going to be going to Spain soon, I got to fly over there. So I'll be out of the country for a week or two. No charge for that. You pay six bucks a month to hold your number. That's it. So if you're, if your cell phone use is, um, less than the 60 bucks or 65 or whatever you're paying for your package, you might want to check out Ting. They've got a simulator where you can, uh, you can look at what you, you can like plug in what your usage is and they'll tell you, um, what you would be spending with them. Go to sexaton.ting.com and you can uh, check out the simulator, look at what they've got. Um, as of September 29th, so this is as of the end of this month, uh, any eligible Sprint iPhone 5S or 5C devices can make the move to Ting. Uh, you can also buy them on Ting's page and alternatively you could look into, um, you, they'll do the work for you. So if you there's a Ting personal shopper program that you can sign up for and just say, hey, I want this phone. When it comes available, get it for me. And they've also created a Ting trade-in program 
where customers can sell their existing T-Mobile, Verizon, or AT&T iPhone 5C or 5S, or any other device for that matter, and get reimbursed 30% of the sale price when switching to a Sprint phone, because Ting works on the Sprint network. Um, So anyway, check them out, sexaton.ting.com. Very cool, uh, pay-as-you-go, save money when you're not using it. And this episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. You've heard about them before here and elsewhere, I'm sure. I think Rogan uh, is sponsored by them as well. I think Duncan, they seem to be everywhere these days. Uh, My website is built on Squarespace. It's a template system, very easy, very slick. Uh, It's actually fun to do because you just pick a template, plug in your, your text, your photos, whatever you've got, videos, you can move it all around. It's all very intuitive and easy to do, and uh, and it looks great within like ten seconds. It you know it looks great the minute you build it. There's not a lot of uh, there's no coding or you know complicated stuff like that. Um, and what the coolest thing for me is that even after you've plugged in this content, you can click on another template and it'll just shift everything around into this new style. So you can change the look with one click. Uh, and you don't have to re-enter stuff, and you know you can uh, move it around if you want, but you don't have to. And then if you say, eh, "No, nah, I liked it better the other way," just click back. Boom, you're back there. So it's uh, it's very cheap. It's uh, if you get the year package, I think it's like eight bucks a month. If you don't have a URL and you buy the year package, they will uh, include your URL, which is like twelve to fifteen bucks a year. So you knock that off, you get a month and a half free there. And then if you use the um, the discount code SEX, S-E-X, at checkout, you'll get another 10% off. So check them out, Squarespace, very cool. If you don't have a, you know, maybe you think, well, I don't know if I even need a website, whatever. Sure, maybe you don't, right? But for eight bucks a month, minus 10%, that's pretty good, right? Uh it could just be a place to uh, have a little blog, put up your vacation photos so everyone can see them instead of sending out emails to everybody. Just uh, throw them up there. Anyway, it's uh, if you're thinking about getting a website, it's a very cheap, easy, fun way to get into it. And I believe they give you a 15-day free trial where they don't even ask you for a credit card or anything. You can just go on there for two weeks and muck about and see what you come up with. And if you decide it's not worth the trouble, boom, walk away. No problem. So that's Squarespace. Use sex, S-E-X, at checkout. You get 10% off. All right, that's enough bullshit for me. Uh, really appreciate everybody who's listening to this all over the world. It blows my fucking mind every time I look at the stats and I see people in Mongolia are downloading this podcast and uh, you know, Australia, New Zealand, and Papua New Guinea. It's just blowing my mind. Um, and as I've said before, it's so strange because I'm sitting here alone in my office right now where I sit every day. I couldn't be more relaxed. I haven't even taken a shower yet. I haven't brushed my teeth yet, not to gross you out. Uh, so it couldn't be more sort of casual and domestic for me. And yet, on the other end, you know, 30, 50,000 people are out there. It's a stadium full of people. If I were standing in front of you in a stadium, believe me, I would not, I would have brushed my teeth. I <laughs> promise you that. Anyway, thanks. 
Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for the very kind comments uh, that you put up on iTunes and elsewhere. If you want to discuss any of these episodes, don't forget you can leave comments uh, for each episode at chrisryanphd.com. Just click on podcast. You'll see Tangentially Speaking. There's some really good conversations going on in there, and uh, I welcome everybody's voice as long as you're not a dick. And... Um, you know, and I get in there and, and uh, try to respond to people if you have questions for me or anything. And let me know how you feel about the new, uh, the new funky lead-in music. See if you like that or, or you like it the way it used to be or whatever your opinion is on that. I'm always happy to hear from you. So thanks. Hope you enjoy this conversation, and I'll catch you next week. All right, ladies and gentlemen. This is the return of Thaddeus Russell. Or should I call you Thad? I forget. Is it Thad or Thaddeus? Well, that, that, or Dr. Because we're friends. Dr. TR. Yeah. Um, it's good to have you back. The, the uh, episode we did, what, about a year ago now? Something yeah. Something like that? Yeah. Got a lot of attention. That, yeah. There's a lot of downloads. Yeah? Yeah. If I were selling widgets, that would have been a good episode. Oh, really? To sell widgets on. Yeah, that, that was one of the more downloaded episodes ever, I think. Huh. Um, I have to say, I was going to tell you, I, yeah. I, I, I got a lot of great... Uh, friends from that episode. Oh, really? Uh, a lot of people got in touch with me who were really interesting, smart people. So it was one of the oh, good. more productive things I've ever done. Yeah. Good. Really? Yeah, it's great. Well, let's hope it happens again. Um, you got, got a good audience, man. Yeah, yeah, it's true. They're, it's a very good audience. Um, no, no, they're they're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> that was Chris. <laughs> yeah, I know. No, I just heard myself like, you know... What can I say that isn't pandering? You know? <laughs> no, no, yeah. Um, no, it's it's true. I, I get a lot of email. It's hard to know. You know, you, you don't know obviously who doesn't write to you. But I don't get a lot of trolling, which is great. Mm-hmm. And I get a lot of very sincere comments, questions. You know, people seem to to engage seriously, and mm-hmm. they appreciate the yeah. the quality of the guests. Yeah. Other than you, uh, you know, they, they said the other guys are great. No, uh, no, I think what they liked about you and what they like in general is people who just bring, um, you know, uh, an unusual perspective to things. You know, they like, they like to, like me, you know, I guess that's the resonance, right? I like that too. So you've got an unusual perspective on things. Often. Often. Yes. Yeah. No, is that, I wanted to ask you about that. Are you... Like, what's your your personality uh, profile? Because <laughs> you went, where'd you go? Columbia? Great, great question. Well, oh, well, that's more like... Yeah, you're an Ivy League. Credentials. Right? Profile. Well, but but that's part of it, right? Because sure. you need to be a certain kind of person yeah. to, like, do your fucking homework in high school, yeah, have yeah. the GPA, okay. be, be in the glee club or whatever the fuck you were I in. I guess we didn't do this before. Um, yeah, I wrote a piece in the Huffington Post that got a lot of attention my book came out four years ago about this very thing, but it was short, so I can maybe give a fuller uh, story right here. Yeah, I'm, I have a very weird background, um, politically, culturally, educationally, all that. I was born in Berkeley, California in 1965, right? <laughs> to, uh, my, at the time, my parents were, I tell this to people, they don't believe me or they don't know what it means, revolutionary socialists. They were professional revolutionaries, which means, I mean, they really were. They they sort of dropped out of the system and got jobs. They were, you know, 
highly educated. One went to Berkeley, one went to University of Chicago, the other went to Michigan. Um, you had three parents? Yeah. Step, wow. Stepdad, mom, oh, okay. dad. Yeah. <laughs> See, I thought I was being a smartass yeah. there. Like, <laughs> Those things do happen, Chris, you know. Yeah. Uh, we, so um, so they, they dropped out and uh, got jobs in sort of classic blue-collar industrial jobs, um, like steelworking, truck driving, clerical work, wow. to, to organize workers for the revolution. Yeah, so they were so they went like full on Pol Pot. They were well, yeah. I mean, they were Trotskyists, so, anti-intellectual. Yeah, they yeah. were Trotskyists, sort of a revolutionary socialists right. um, movement in Europe and the United States through the 20th century. It's still around, but but can I interrupt you <laughs> sure. for a quick trivia break yeah, here? Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting story it has nothing to do with the, the quality of the story you're telling, but Leon Trotsky's granddaughter is a prominent figure in American society. Do you know who she is? Oh, I think I may have heard this. Who is it? Uh, Nora Volkow, who's the head of the National Drug Abuse Institute, I forget what it's called, yeah. the National Coalition on Drug Abuse, and ND, whatever it is, National yeah. Drug Abuse, whatever. They're the ones who, like, approve funding for research and, oh. you know, insist on oh, marijuana being... Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I have seen that. Yes, She's yes, a yes. major, <laughs> a major block in the, you know, rationalization of American drug policy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Another reason I hate Trotsky. Yeah. Um, so, so that, you know, and, the, and this was Berkeley, right, in the 60s and 70s, so you can sort of guess, right, what my world was like. Um, you know, it was very political. I was around sort of political intellectuals all the time, um, and there was also the counterculture, which... My parents were somewhat into not as much as like the hardcore hippies in the Bay Area at the time. Right. Um, in fact, a lot of people don't understand that. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> Chris is doing some like shaman exercise. Here. <laughs> no, what, what I'm doing, I, this is a new microphone, and as you're talking, I'm sort of moving it around, uh, picking up the best sound quality. I, you know, okay. obviously, if I were a, if you, a true professional, oh, I would have done this before. There you go. I bet that's good. But yeah, I, I'm raising it up so it's like, uh, like at our mouth levels. So how's that? Do I, do yeah. I sound beautiful? I want to sound beautiful. You sound like Adele. It's they, amazing. See? So not beautiful, People but have told me that good before. voice. I get that all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, okay, Berkeley. There, so there was kind of a, a lot of people don't know this. Like when people hear, you know, I'm from I was from Berkeley in the '60s and '70s. They immediately think, you know, drugs and rock and roll and that. So there, people don't understand that there was a split in that very famous time and place um, between the hardcore political politicos like my parents and the counterculture of that San Francisco. So the. the the really hardcore sort of socialist, political, anti-war, civil rights movement types were in Berkeley for the most part, and they tended to have a lot of disdain for the hippies in San Francisco, actually, mm. because they saw them as being unserious, right? Uh, being sort of interested in getting high and sitting in Golden Gate Park and you know playing drums, right? Um, so, you know, so I grew up in this this milieu where, you know, you're supposed to be a socialist, you're supposed to be political, you're supposed to be intellectual, you're supposed to know everything about what's going on in the world at all times and have something to say about it. You have siblings? Fair, fair amount of pressure. I do, younger sibling, three years younger. Mm -hmm. um, I was never, well, I will say this about my parents, uh, to their great credit, I mean, they were shitty parents otherwise, in most ways, but <laughs> one thing that they get credit for is... Um, that they never, as far as I know, really consciously tried to indoctrinate me. Mm -hmm. 
So there was never like a sitting me down and saying, okay, so you understand that capitalism is bad for the following 20 reasons and you need to read this book and you need to read Marx and the, never got that, that I remember. And I, I really appreciate that. And I try to do that with my son. I mean, he knows that I'm political. He knows that I, you know, basically am professionally political in different ways now, but I am. Um, and I, I try, he asks me questions a lot because he's old enough now to sort of understand some things and be interested. He's very curious. And I, and I always say to him, look, um, this, this is what I think about this topic. It is not the truth. <laughs> it is not the only way to think about it. Right. And I insist on that. And I'm, I, because my politics have shifted back and forth in all sorts of ways um, since I was a child, uh, the thing I am actually most committed to more than any other political position is open inquiry and right. intellectualism. I mean, I... I, <laughs> I have great respect for hardcore social conservatives, even though we're like on polar opposites, you know, of the spectrum. Um, Why do you have great if, respect if, for them? If, if, oh, okay, if they are, if they are interested in sort of a, a principled engagement uh -huh. on ideas, right? Right. If they just call me, you know, whatever, a baby killer or a, I don't know, degenerate, whatever, it's not, not going to go anywhere. But I mean, and that holds true for liberals and socialists and libertarians and everybody have your, but, um, so I, so as a child, revolutionary socialist Trotskyist parents, Berkeley, California, 1970s, you know, I, for various psychosocial reasons we can talk about, I had this mission to become one of them, of course, right, to please them, basically. I mean, it wasn't, that wasn't conscious, but I'm sure that's what was going on. Um, and so, like, I mean, I, I, I literally went to college with this idea. I need to find out what socialism is. <laughs> Because I didn't really know, because they had never really tried to teach me, and then become a socialist, right? So I did that. And where'd you go? I went to Antioch College. Oh, that's the yeah. perfect place. Oh, I know. So I went. I I've never. I tell people I've never lived in America. <laughs> uh, I went to yeah. So Berkeley, Berkeley High. I was a shitty, shitty student um, all the way from kindergarten through high school. I mm -hmm. almost failed eighth grade. I got C's and D's. I finished with a C minus average in high school. Mm. I didn't even know what the SAT was because my parents were so spaced out. Mm. Um, and I mean, I did not know what the SAT was, so I didn't take it. I didn't know which college to go to, how to apply, I didn't know anything. I was just sort of a mess. And then, um, I don't know, something kicked in. I, I didn't go to school, didn't go to college after the year after high school, smoked weed every single day, worked a, worked a minimum wage job at a cookie store, making three thirty-five an hour. Um, and I, something at that moment sort of kicked in and said, you know what, there's something, <laughs> there's a reason for you to go to college. Three thirty five an hour. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, but it was more <laughs> like, you know, I, I mean, I was insecure about my intelligence, but there was something inside of me that said, you know, you, something told me you've got a mind, you know, there's something inside you that's curious and interested in big ideas, which was true, obviously. Um, so I, I sat, so I got very disciplined for the first time in my life. I like bought these SAT books that had just like a hundred SAT exams. And I took, I sat down and took SAT after SAT after SAT. And I improved my score by like 300 points, applied to colleges, totally randomly heard about Antioch because a friend of mine went there. didn't know anything about anything. Um, Antioch college at that time, this was in the, uh, early eighties, 83, 84, uh, was almost bankrupt, had 400 students. Half the buildings on campus were condemned. Um, 
Um, Socialists are shitty this business. No, well, so Antioch wasn't even... So, they were, like, to the left of socialists. So, like, I was the conservative on campus. Oh, like, really? Oh, yeah. It was run by anarchists, basically. Anarchists <laughs> and just sort of spaced-out idiots, you know, who couldn't manage shit. So I get there, I mean, and it was like... It was like both glorious and absurd um, at the same time. So, like, tons of sex and nudity and drugs in a good way. So there wasn't, like, sort of self There wasn't much self-destructive drug use, but there was, you know, plenty of pot being smoked and a little bit of cocaine and some ecstasy, but not to the extent that anybody Any had. hallucinogens? Mushrooms? Yeah, oh, definitely acid. I didn't do acid, but there was many people who did do yeah. it there. Um, and See, I think I think that's an important part of any education. Mushrooms. Yeah, I maybe. I was so scared of it. I had a horrible experience on mushrooms when I was 18. Yeah. And so I, ever since, I've been very afraid of hallucinogens. Um, but, um, and just a, a real, like, a real liberation. <laughs> a real liberation. And, like, I mean, I remember, like, one of the first days I was there, there was this huge uh, thunderstorm and the whole sort of main lawn of the campus got kind of made into a mud field. And I remember walking across campus and there was just like 20 or 30 students just stark naked, like frolicking in the mud. And it was just <laughs> like mini Woodstock. And like my first thought was sort of like revulsion and sort of embarrassment. And then my very second thought was, God, this is the best place to be. Like, yeah. This is what human beings should do much more of. Frolic in the mud. Yeah, seriously. Like, naked. No, right? I mean, I know you agree with this. Yeah. I mean... It's like, and that was, it was like the last, this was in the mid eighties. This was to me, Antioch then was like the last gasp of the best of the 1960s. Right. And for people who don't know this, a lot of them will be too young to remember this. Mid eighties was Reagan revolution. Mid eighties was wall street. It was like, well, yes. And so totally yes. And totally no. And a lot, this is what people don't understand about the eighties because and the Reagan years, Reagan was, of course, sort of in terms of high politics, absolutely very right wing, mostly, although actually compared to the, the Republican Party now, he was like a liberal. But, you know, still then he was definitely right wing. But the, there was this that was the last time there was a truly, I would say, mass social left wing movement. Um, the, the, the reaction to Reagan's policy was really broad based and it was quite militant, quite radical. So I was involved in the, I was involved in the anti-war movement, um, in particular around Central America because Reagan went and killed a whole bunch of people in Central America during that time. And yeah. The death squads, the death squads in El Salvador, Nicaragua. Um, and so, yeah, which by the, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but which by the way is coming home to roost right now with all those, the Hondurans and the Guatemalans and the Salvadorans sure. coming across the border sure. in Texas. And sure. And, and that, well, that's also a product of the drug war. Yeah. Most, most, which, which is also Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's everybody. And it's Nixon. Reagan. It's Nixon, Reagan in everybody's sense. But yeah. yeah. Um, um, so actually the eighties people, you know, it was, uh, there was a very powerful counterculture in the 80s that you don't really have now. I think we are living in a much more conservative time. Yeah. And I'd actually like to talk about that. Hold on yeah. just a second. Make, let me just. So you went uh, to college as an undergraduate in the mid 80s, the Reagan revolution and all that. Yeah, yeah. And people get, uh, I think, they, they have sort of a misunderstanding about that time, especially if they're too young to remember it. But, you know, it was, 
at sort of the high levels of politics, of course, Reagan represented a, you know a major right wing move. Although you know compared to today's Republican Party, he's basically a liberal. But certainly at the time, he was um, a reactionary force in many many ways. Um, and that you know, and that's true for I mean, people on the left I, who I know hate him, and libertarians who I know hate him. Those are the sort of two groups I hang out with. But. Um, but what people don't remember is that that was actually, I think, the last time there was a true counterculture in the United States. Um, there was a really, first of all, just a broad-based movement that was quite radical, quite militant against his policies, yeah. so just politically. But then... <clears throat> I remember people going down to Nicaragua to help yeah. the Sandinistas pick coffee and stuff. Yeah, I was in, so yeah. I was very involved. That was the movement I was most involved in, was the anti-war movement and sort of the solidarity with uh, Central Americans movement um, in various ways. Um, but, you know, I went to... I went to a, God, I went to, uh, in like 1986 or 7, I went to a pro-choice rally in Washington, D.C. on the mall. There were one million people there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, there was, there was broad-based um, opposition to Reagan politically. But then, sort of also, I mean, this was kind of like, you know, AIDS had just started. So the kind of reaction against the sexual revolution hadn't quite set in. Uh, the way we have it now, um, and I think you know, drugs were not quite as vilified as they are now. Um, although, well, I guess that's coming back. But I mean, there was, there was, um, there was just. I think there was a looser culture in many ways. In some ways, a, a, a less, much less conservative culture than we have now. I really think we are living in one of the most cons- conservative eras in American history, and I think that's largely actually because, not entirely because of Clinton and Obama, but largely because of them, because. Once, once the people who are normally in opposition have their guy take power, they tend to identify with power. And not just power, but they tend to identify with state power, which is the most conservative force, in my view, in the world. So you see a lot of people sort of become identified with the establishment, especially with Obama. I think that was a real catastrophe for us culturally. Um, and so now you see people who normally would be in the streets or just sort of questioning things, lar- uh, uh, questioning large forces, large cultural formations in the society, spend a lot of their time defending the White House and the military <laughs> and the NSA and, you know, the United States of America, who used to sort of never think of wearing a, an American flag. Um, so anyway, but I, yeah, so I was in Antioch. It was this highly radical place. At the same time, and this is really played out in, in my book, um, really shaped my thinking. It took me a while to understand what was going on. Antioch was unbelievably libertine. So there's all this sort of like fucking and rolling around in the mud and doing drugs right. and... Without signed releases beforehand, <laughs> right? Which is, well, they're at the forefront that, of That's that what I'm getting to. That's exactly yeah. what I'm getting to. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> Um, so, you know, and it was just the most fun anyone could ever have. And it was wonderful in so many ways. Yeah, keep, keep smacking the table like that. Sorry about that's, that. That's really good. Sorry about that. You warned me. <laughs> I'm trying to hurt your ears. So, um, but simultaneously, uh, it was paradoxically intensely puritanical, <laughs> almost totalitarian. Not always, but at times this would flare up. Right. Uh, which, you know, is that to me is kind of the bohemian left generally. That's those two impulses play out in the bohemian left generally. Well, so, why, why do you say bohemian? Oh, uh, well, I mean, you know, 
you know, basically people like you and me. I mean, people sort of our, our milieu, I mean, sort of middle class, educated, uh, culturally sophisticated, yeah. people who read The New Yorker, you know, um, people who go to foreign films occasionally, you know, I mean, <laughs> okay, who are, who are li- right. u- usually liberal to the left, right. maybe libertarian, but, but you know, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't, agree don't with know you. a Republican, like, I don't know a Republican, I, do, I literally do not know a Republican, really, uh, not real, not, that I'm aware of, I mean, yeah. I'm not friends with them, um, so, oh, but I was, so was going to say, um, so, What's my evidence for this Puritanism at Antioch College of all places? And this, you know, what I what I consider to be, I mean, Puritanism to me is the ultimate conservatism, right? Right. Um, and so, what's the evidence for that? Well, about two years after I graduated, so in the early nineties, ninety ninety one, um, they drafted and passed and enacted uh, this what became this nationally infamous sexual conduct policy right. which which what you referred to which requires um which requires one to ask for permission for every sexual act every escalation and, that, and that's not that's not just like <laughs> blowjobs and intercourse that's may i touch your breast yeah. may i kiss you yeah may I touch your thigh, everything that would be, could be construed as romantic or intimate or sexual. Right. Um, See, that, that's why I question your use of the term bohemian. Okay. Okay? Because I agree with you that there is a very strong puritanical movement on the left or, or energy on the left, which we see in, you know, Stalinism and, and Pol Pot. And, you know, those are all considered leftists, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Mao is politically left, but mm-hmm. obviously culturally extremely restrictive and, mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what's the word? Um, Repressive. Repressive. Thank you. That, that should be a word you're familiar with. <laughs> it should. Yeah. I think I've repressed it. <laughs> I think it. you've written that many times. <clears throat> but, yeah. uh, you know, but I wouldn't consider that bohemian because to me, bohemian yeah. is like, yeah, whatever, man, oh, yeah. you know, masturbate, you know, have to fuck a lot, take some drugs. So I don't see that as the bohemian left. I see that as the political left. Okay. Whereas the bohemian left is more of a live and let live. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Yeah. Like uh, your parents sound well, to me like they were more oh, puritanical, well, political left. No, actually. They the, hated the hippies actually, who were lying around fucking. So actually. Uh, my parents were not. Oh. And that is precisely why they left the movement. Ah. Because they really liked good food, ah, nice restaurants, right, right. nice clothes, fancy cars, and a, and a really cool house to live in. Right. Um, and so that's actually one of the main reasons they left. Um, but I think, I guess, I, okay, I guess I would agree with you. And here was what I would say about bohemianism. I would say there's not much of a bohemian left anymore. In fact, that is what I want to say. Yeah. And in fact, that really is what my work is about. At the end of the day, that's the political mission I have, which is to bring it back. There uh, used to be a good, solid, angry, loud, bohemian left yeah. that since the 1970s has pretty much faded away. Yeah. Um, you know, and you go, that sort of, it sort of began in Greenwich Village in the 1900s, 1910s with Emma Goldman. Um, and that crew who were basically, you know, free love types. Right. Birth uh, control. And f- very much for birth control yeah. and, and wanted to legalize prostitution. Uh, through the, And then, of course, the 20s is when it really flowered beautifully. Um, and you see tremendous sexual liber- liberation in the 1920s. And that was 
not entirely, but much of that was driven by people who were identified as left-wing. Right. That was really more of a social movement that was beyond politics. But, yes, I mean, there were good people on the left who, who were really for that. Um, it got crushed by the New Deal. And, again, I think, that, you know, people think of FDR as this great man, great liberator, but actually it was an incredibly regimented period, and the New Deal was very much a part of that. I have a chapter in my book on that, making that argument. So the New Deal was subverting the actual liberal energy by so the new, buying them off, essentially? Uh, yeah, the New Deal was profoundly socially conservative. So here's an example. Um, you know, it's well known for its um, artistic social welfare programs, right? right. So they had Public ri- works. writers. No, well, they had writers programs. Yeah, so they the, paid, the Dorothea Lange. They paid was, writers yeah. to go write books and stuff, and, and they paid photographers, photographers like Dorothea Lange, yeah. and they paid artists to do murals. And right. all those. Um, they also had... Uh, Music. There yeah. were, you know, this is federally funded music programs. Right. Well, guess which genre of music was not allowed in those orchestras? Jazz. Right. Okay, this is in the 1930s. This is when jazz is becoming the most popular music in the world. It was still considered to be a dance music and a sexual music. So mm-hmm. it was verboten. So only classical music was played in New Deal orchestras. Um, if you look at the murals of the New Deal, the, the famous WPA murals that are all over the country, you know, you'll see like a celebration of work. You'll see like these right. big manly, you know, masculine dudes with big right. Diego Rivera muscles. Yeah. Right. I mean, if you go to like Coit Towers, a real famous one right. in San Francisco, but they're all over. Um, it's this very sort of masculine pro labor industrial, like big gears, right. men working in the fields and in the factories. And right. it's like not exactly sensual. I mean, in the way that you and I would think right. of sensuality. Um, so no, to me, and then of course, then you have the war. So, which was, you know, I mean, that's when the ultimate regimentation of human beings happens is in a war, especially in a mass mechanized war like World War II. So the thirties and forties was a disaster in my view for cultural freedom, sexual liberation, all that good stuff. Mm. Um, and it begins to come back in the fifties when people come back and they're starting to smoke and drink and make money, they have money to spend. That's a big part of it. Right. Um, car automobiles and televisions become available and so that's all these sort of forms of leisure that were previously unavailable and people are accessing them. People think of the 50s as just conservative and a lot of it most certainly was but there was this sort of embrace of pleasure you know through commercial things you know uh, through materialism but to me that's not a bad thing Um, and there's the beginnings there's the stirrings in that very moment in the 1950s of things like gay liberation. You have Allen Ginsberg, you know, writing in the 1950s pretty openly about being gay and not just pretty openly, but pretty sexually, pretty erotically, you know. Um, you have the beat poets. You have, um, you have sort of, you have, you have jazz. You have jazz taking off, uh, becoming sort of uh, respectable but still subversive. Um, you have the celebration of black artists like John Coltrane and Miles Davis, you know. Um, and then, of course, the 60s, which is what everyone knows about. But the seeds of that really were in the 50s, I think, and most people think. Um, so, um, where was I? Oh, Bohemians. Yes. Um, so, well, so at Antioch, some kind of, well, Berkeley and Antioch, I, I kind of see this, this paradox on the left. Um, and I see, you know, I see that they're sort of nominally committed to certain kinds of freedom, but then I see these tremendous reactions to freedom, and in particular sexual freedom. Yeah. Um, and also there's, yeah. a, there's a real sort of punitive, moralistic side to it that I saw. Like two kids when I was at Antioch, 
were having like this anti-Christian art exhibit where they had like a bunch of crosses on the wall. I forget exactly what they're doing. And at one point, and there was a, we had fires just to have fires in barrels, just to have fires. And they, at one point to really like drive the point home in a very undergraduate way that they hated Christianity, one of them grabbed a wooden cross off the wall and threw it into the fire. Well, most of us saw that and were like, oh yeah, they hate Christianity. Uh-oh. Well, cross burning. They got expelled for, what? Bur- for burning crosses. Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the the dean of students at Antioch College at the time was the son of Mickey Schwerner, of Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner, Ooh. of uh, the Mississippi Freedom Summer guys who uh-huh. got killed by the Ku Klux Klan right. in 1963. Right. He was the brother of one of them. So Antioch was very left-wing, very, very, very civil rights-oriented. Yeah. And he kind of led the charge to get them expelled. Unbelievable. So there you go. That's bullshit. But I mean, that's so common, though. And that's, you know, as you you may know, I've recently moved back to the U.S. after 20-some years in Spain and and other places. And um, I agree that it's an incredibly conservative time in most ways. I mean, there's so many different frequencies. You can point to marijuana legalization and say, what are you talking about? That's the great exception. Or or gay gay rights, same-sex marriage. (laughs) I I would love to make the argument that gay marriage is conservative. Yeah, sure, because it ropes you into monogamy and marriage. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We should be getting rid of marriage as a political institution for everybody. But anyway... um, but but the thing I'm most struck by, and maybe it's just because of my particular vantage point on American society, but is the fucking scolding, restrictive, repressive left. Oh, right on. I get way more me shit too. from angry <laughs> lesbians than I do from angry Christians. Huh, yeah. You know? Oh, sure. Me too. Um, and it's also, you know... Oh, Dr. Ryan, I'm disappointed that you would, you know, make that joke or you would use that word. That Don't you know that that word is disempowering to, you know, whatever fucking little minority group that I'm in and you and your white privilege and your male, you know, power and blah, blah, blah. I'm so fucking sick of hearing that shit, you know, and I, I have these sort when of ongoing you are, rants about When that. every single day, most of the day, Chris Ryan, in my view, is enlarging sexual freedom for everybody. Like, well, that's your work, man. No, it is. Well, I mean, it, I feel much, everybody. much more angry. I mean, I, for myself, <laughs> I don't care much, but what really gets me is when people um, try to get me to side with them against Dan Savage. Who, who is you know who I'm talking sure, about? Sure, yeah, but why? What's the conflict well? Because between he's you not. And Dan? There is no conflict oh. between me and Dan, but there's a conflict between them and Dan because Dan is not sufficiently pure. Oh, because he doesn't like because he uses the word tranny. Well, you, that's the most recent that one. Bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are other ones where he said, you know, I think male bisexuality is incredibly rare because, in my experience, most men who claim to be bisexual are actually gay and they just haven't copped to it yet. Right. That's what I did. That's what my friends did. And, you know, then later he was like, well, I don't know. I've heard from so many bi men that I guess I was wrong about that. And, you know, he he very openly evolved on the the topic. Yeah. But people won't let him go. They won't forgive him. And who has done more for same-sex marriage and LGBT rights than Dan Savage? He's fucking historical. Exactly. People, yeah, people with the the tranny thing. And I had someone defriend me on Facebook over this. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, that must have hurt. Which was, oh. well, no, but they, they said, and other people, and I heard this from many people, that they felt physically threatened by yeah. Dan Savage yeah. using the word right. tranny. I well, said, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah. You're, you're, you're scared of Dan Savage? Right. And if and, you feel physically threatened or, or threatened psychologically and, you know, you need a trigger warning, fuck you. Fuck you, because oh, the yeah. world doesn't change to deal with your problems, oh, well, right? Yeah. And I, I think, you know, if you're familiar with the hygiene hypothesis, no. the hygiene hypothesis states that the reason there are so many allergies in kids these days and oh, asthma sure. and all that shit is because they're not exposed to pathogens sure. as kids, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So they never get the immune response to stuff because they're not out playing in the yard anymore. Yeah, right? you, you know who's doing really good work on this is Lenore Skenazi. I don't know. I think that's how it's pronounced. But she, mm-hmm. uh, she's, I guess, sort of a libertarian feminist parent activist who's like on this great campaign about, you know, letting kids play freely right? and, you know, against helicopter parenting and all right, that Right, exactly. Stuff. Let them get hurt. Let them get sick. Let yeah. them scrape their fucking knees, yeah. you know, because if they don't, they end up being like overgrown fucking whining assholes, which is right. what we're dealing with at this point with so many people. Yeah. You know, you feel threatened by or you're, you're offended by something you heard me say or you saw me tweet. Fucking stop following me. <laughs> Go away. You know, don't try to make me change my behavior and you know my yeah. language because you're fucking sensitive. Yeah, about I mean, it. I'm you know, I'm at, being an academic at a left wing college. I'm at ground zero of trigger warnings, uh, so I know all about. Do you have to do that? You have to like give trigger warnings <laughs> if they ever try to make me do that. Good uh, luck, really. Yeah. Oh yeah, no, I mean, um, no, it's absurd. I mean, I mean you're mean, teaching American history, right? Yeah. Well, so, so slavery. Yeah, so, I was gonna say you know, thank you. So violence. this is what I have said about this. So yeah. it's like so I give lectures about slavery, about lynchings, about the use of machine guns against thousands of men in World War One, mustard gas, the atomic bomb, right. Hiroshima. Nag- I give them details about what happened to human bodies in Hiroshima on that day. Vaporization right. of human bodies, thousands of people. That's all fine. Oh. That's not, that doesn't trigger anybody. Oh, really? But if I use, right, but if I use tranny, I guess, <laughs> um, forget about it. I once made, well, yeah. Oh, so here's an argument. So here's a, here's a great example of. Oh, wait, hold that sure, thought. Yeah, okay, because yeah, yeah. I sort uh, the clan, I just wanted yeah, to yeah, yeah. insert my, sure. my wife and I, you know, she's from Mozambique yeah. and like speaks seven languages, yeah. but like they're all over the place. Right. Uh, we were watching this uh, Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where For Out There, or Where Out uh-huh. There, or whatever. And there's a scene where they come over a hill and there's a Clan rally oh, going yeah. on with right. the, the hoods and the turn. <laughs> and she leans over to me, we're in the theater, and she leans over and she says, Is that the Couscous Clan? <laughs> <laughs> I think they're in Gaza right now, the Couscous Clan. <laughs> the um, Couscous Clan, like, kills me. Uh, anyway, so what were you going to Oh, say? yeah, I know, your thing about getting trashed by lesbians much more than by, you know, Rick Santorum and the Christian right. I mean, so my deal is, I, I, like, Sean Hannity has had me on his radio show a few times, which was bizarre. I don't know why he bothered. Because there's it's it's absolutely, there's nothing we can say to each other, ever, right. Right. that will ever change, you know, either of our positions. I mean, well, but they, he doesn't want what's you the to point? convince him. It's theater. Oh, no, no, I know. But even, yeah. I mean, but so it's like, and I, and I basically, I respect conservatives who really know who they are. Like, I actually respect Rick Santorum and those people because they really know 
who they are and what they want, and they're just going to get it. Now, I will fight them on the barricades with an AK-47, but at least they know who they are, and I can't tell them that they're wrong morally. I mean, I don't want to do that. It's just, mm-hmm. it's their values. I think values are autonomous, and they should be respected. Um, once the second they try to make me live the way they want me to live, I will shoot them through the fucking head. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's liberals who are very confused and leftists who are very confused <laughs> who make me... they're trying to impose their morality. Like what we're talking about, right. you know, that they, they are unaware that there's much in the history and ideology of left-wing politics that is profoundly conservative. Yeah. That's really one of my major missions is just yeah. to point that out. Who, who said... Was it Emma Goldman, one of those like old time leftists who said something like, you know, if there's no fucking in this movement, count me out. Dancing. She said no dancing. Yeah, if you're, I think it's uh, if if there's if your revolution, if there's no dancing in your revolution, I don't, I'm not interested or something like that. Yeah, it's a great line. That's how I feel. Emma was the humorlessness, and and also nothing against lesbians, right? I mean, we're not criticizing lesbians. I think what (laughs) I threw that out as an example, but the it's the humorlessness. Yeah. That is, uh, that's the offense. That yeah, yeah. that's the problem. I don't care where you are. If I mean, even a right wing person, if they've got a sense of humor, you can deal with them. Yeah. You know, many there now. Many lesbians are some of the most badass, awesome pro sex feminists. Also, I mean, right. there are some fabulous sure. fucking feminists out yeah. there who are Susie my, Bright's a friend. Susie Bright's a good friend of mine too. Oh, good. You know, well, there we go. Blurbed my book, and I love Susie. Oh, that's right. Yeah. 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 So she's no, she's awesome. I mean, there's a bunch of them who are just you know top of my list as heroes. I gave Susie Bright a foot massage once. Did you? Yeah. Right. But, but I, I didn't do it very well. I felt bad about Uh-oh. that. Yeah. That's a high, high pressure. On I was distracted. Yeah. I showed it. It was the first time I'd met her. I, I was driving down and she'd written to me. She said, hey, if you ever come through Santa Cruz, you know, you got a place to stay yeah. and I'd love to meet you. And, and uh, you know, I know, I know what it's like to be on the road, you know, doing book readings and stuff. And, you know, we know we'll treat you right and yeah. all that. So I stop in at her place, and it was really funny. She's really into baseball. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Okay. And, and it was like the playoffs were happening. It was the Giants She's into against the Giants. someone. Okay, right. <laughs> yeah. so, so I don't know anything about baseball, but I show up just as like game five is getting underway. So she says, hey, how you doing? Come on in. Sit down. Here's a cocktail. Like they made this yep. beautiful cocktail yeah. for me. And, uh, I had the same experience, yeah. Yeah, and like within five minutes of arriving, I'm like in slippers drinking a cocktail right. watching the World Series. Yeah. And then later I was giving her a foot massage because she had some pain or whatever. But I was, I don't know, I was thinking about something else. And so I was like going fast and, you know, like the energy was all wrong. And, and then she said, oh, could you do that a little softer and slower? And I was like, oh, fuck. I, so I have something I way, way more embarrassing that I did in, or not I did, but I was responsible for in Susie's house. My dog took a shit inside her house. Oh, that's not nice. It wasn't nice at all. It was it was mortifying. <laughs> Fortunately, she didn't see it, and I'm, I cleaned it up before she was even aware of it. Oh, but, well, that's good. But, like, she, yeah, she put us up. We stayed the night there, and uh, the next morning, the dog hadn't been let out in time or something, and there he was, and I was just like, I couldn't believe this. <laughs> um, well, dogs will do that. And she was so generous and so nice to me. Um, but anyway, so Susie, Ellen Willis, I don't know if you know Ellen Willis. She's She died about 10 years ago. Yeah. Oh, my God, you need to read Ellen Willis. She, um, in my view and the view of many, was kind of the the best pro-sex or sex-positive feminist intellectual writer. She was a journalist, taught journalism at NYU, mm. wrote for The Nation, wrote for you know a lot of left-wing 
uh, journals and magazines and was just absolutely brilliant. She was sort of at the center of, Susie was too, but she, uh, Ellen was very much at the center of the kind of the porn wars of the late 70s and early 80s, uh, right? The Andrea Dworkin, Catherine McKinnon stuff. They're good friends of mine. Really? Oh, yeah, we hang out a lot. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, if I were the one who, did you kill Andrea Dworkin? If you I were again? in her house, I would shit in her yeah, house. Yes, right. You know, Susie Bright wrote a huge defense of Andrea Dworkin. Oh, really? Not exactly, well, not exactly a defense, but sort of like a... When she when Dworkin died a couple years ago, Susie wrote a this big piece, sort of like explaining the overlap in their ideas, which was sort of surprising. Um, we should we should say Andrea Dworkin wrote what was it called? Woman hating or man hating? Someone hating? Well, she wrote a lot of stuff. Uh, as, <laughs> this is controversial. I mean, this is a controversial interpretation among some, but she and McKinnon. I think it's hard to it's hard to argue against the interpretation that they were saying that heterosexual sex intrinsically is mm. oppressive. Is, is rape. All men are in, in yeah. innately rapists. Yeah. People, yeah. Some, I have had some people tell me that they, they didn't really say that, but uh, what they definitely, absolutely said, repeatedly and aggressively and successfully, was that pornograph- all pornography was oppressive and degrading and should be banned. Right. And they, they actually led a, success, a couple successful censorship campaigns where they got the city of Minneapolis to with, and they worked, by the way, and this is very significant, in many cases they worked with Christian conservatives right. to get cities to ban pornography. Right. Uh, Minneapolis was one of them. Yeah, they, they were pillars in that scolding yeah. leftist Right, and almost in, to a, like a level of caricature. Well, and, and also, but, is it coincidental that a lot of those like uh, child sex cult things... Remember that? That was, oh. a lot of that was up you mean, around Minnesota. You mean the moral panic about the child, yeah. the child, right? Uh, that there like were the Mc- Satanists, the McMartin School. Yeah, yeah. Because um, that followed not too that was long national. after. That, that was, was national, national. But I remember some of the first ones were like it, the Upper Plains. It was. I mean, these things are always linked. So these sexual moral panics we've had now it's trafficking. Yeah. By the way, right. And Every I, prostitute is, is, yeah, is working against, against their, their will, will yeah. and they're and they're enslaved. And, they're all slaves. Yeah. Uh, and there's 35 million of them in the world. Right. And, and they're all tricked into and, it. And if we don't invade with the Marines, you know, we are complicit. The, the Marines, who've never fed into yeah. the uh, prostitution Not at all. Business. Not at all. <laughs> um, so, wait, I derailed you. What are you talking about? No, it was a good, uh, was a good derailment. The moral panic and <laughs> Andrew Dorkin. And, so Susie we're just name-dropping lesbians that we know to try to, like, make the up good, for... The good and the bad lesbians. <laughs> Susie's bisexual. But, Couple uh, of white dudes <laughs> talking about lesbians. Welcome to another edition. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Couple of straight We're not dudes. telling them how to live. Lesbians I've known and loved. <laughs> as long as you... Yeah, oh, well, so... Uh, well, okay, so that's my background. Okay, I guess that's what I was doing. You know, like uh, these. The, but you, what we're talking you did about your is like PhD at Columbia. Yeah, so, right? so yeah, so, right. so, so this, this is, is like, how a loser like you got into Columbia. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, total fucking loser. Um, Antioch didn't have grades. Like, yeah. it was a fourth-rate college when I went there. Yeah. It, I mean, none of my professors had published a thing. No one had ever heard of them. It was just ridiculous. I mean, and we it's had, in Ohio. So the the admit yeah well the admission rate when I entered was one hundred percent oh oh it was we had people I'm not kidding you people don't believe me when I say these things we had people who had just come from mental hospitals we had people who had come from jails we had people who were basically uneducated we had people who were semi literate there I mean it was we also had quite a few brilliant people it was just a huge mix 
hippies, punk rockers, transgender people, drag queens, lots of gays and lesbians. It was kind of beautiful in many ways. Yeah. But, but its academic standing was, you know, non-existent. So I, nonetheless, the second I got there, I completely transformed intellectually and sort of figured out how to learn for the first time in my life. I just didn't, when I, all through high school, I just didn't know. Like, it was like Charlie Brown's adults. It was like, wrong, 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 yeah. for 13 years. I mean, really, I didn't know what was going on. Some, I don't know, something about college and having sort of the freedom, but also being paid attention to for the first time, having professors actually notice me and like pay attention to my mind, you know? It just, I took off and I just said, okay, I want to learn all the big stuff. What is the big stuff? And, you know, where is it in the library? And I sat, literally sat down in the stacks in front of the Greek philosophy section in my first semester and I read Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Politics and Aquinas and all the way down the line. And mm. then I went to the Mark section and I read that. And everything, I was just like, I want to know all the big stuff that you're supposed to know in this world if mm. you're going to be an intellectual. Classical education. Classical education. Which Sounds I'm, like St. John's. That would have been a so good So St. John's I was very attracted to. Of course, I had no chance of getting into because yeah. I was a, a loser. But um, but anyway, I got a decent, uh, not a great education, but a decent education, decent grounding and all that stuff. And I was, I was a philosophy major. Mm. And I still really that's really what I'm interested in. I'm interested in the big ideas. I do history to get at the big ideas. I just go through history to get at the big ideas. I don't give a fuck, like, you know, the order of the presidents, but I do care about what they mean uh, in terms of, you know, big social issues, right? Mm. A lot of historians, especially American historians, are just sort of storytellers and, like, what we call antiquarians. They're people who sort of, like, just take information, put it on a shelf and look at it and say, isn't that pretty? You know, like here's the chronology, here's the timeline, but there's no meaning in it. Right. Totally. I could give a shit about that. Um, so anyway, so I, I, you know, became sort of a star student in college. I was like the editor of the newspaper and like, I very serious intellectually, politically, all this stuff went to the London school of economics for my junior year. And that was a trip, you know, and Mm. really saw what it was like to have like a real rigorous education and be scared out of your mind and be like, interrogated by this world famous professor at the head of the table you know in a classroom and in a British accent in a British accent who had just I'm not kidding had just been on BBC the night before like this was an entirely different experience but like I sort of saw what it was like at that high level yeah Um, and I was like hey man I belong here you know this is what I should do and also I was just attracted to the idea of being a college professor which I've become disabused of since then (laughs) but um, and so I said, hey, I got to go to grad school. Um, and I applied to all the major, and I, by that point I'd gotten attracted to history because I realized you could win arguments knowing history. You know, it was the best way to win an argument on anything. You just go back and be like, no, actually, Vietnam was really about this or whatever the question was. Um, <clears throat> and winning arguments is uh, gratifying? Winning arguments, in, so that's sort of my hard wiring, right? That's mm. what my parents would do, and that's mm. what I did was a Grown up, I grew up around that people Debate. attempting to win arguments, right, right? Right. And so, yeah. And then you know, I'm sort of competitive generally, like I'm into yeah. sports, and so yeah. I, I'm aware of it at least. So I try to temper it. And I try right. not to be too much of an asshole. And I try not to lose too many friends <laughs> Just from that. Enough of an asshole. Yeah. I've actually. This is actually a lifelong project. No, really. Like I used to. Like in my twenties and early thirties, like I lost friends, and when I saw that happening, I was like. Who fucking cares if I was right about, you know, the Gulf of Tonkin resolution? I lost my friend, you know? And so Mm. I tried to not do that with people I cared about. Mm. Um, And I'm better at it now. Um, So, like, on Facebook, but on Facebook, it's like, 
because you know ninety percent of my Facebook friends I don't I've never met in my life I have no idea who they were but it's like if the once the second they start to insult me I'm like goodbye you know I mean I don't care um, anyway so I applied to like every major history department graduate program in the United States pretty much and was rejected by all of them except for Columbia which might sound strange except that because it's a major top department. Um, Columbia at that time and had for quite a while accepted a huge number of people but they just didn't give you funding mm. and so their, their system then that's changed since then was to give funding just to a handful of people when they entered and then admit like 30 or 50 people without funding and then let them compete for a year in the first year and then they would give like one fellowship mm. to the out of the 30 or 40 or however many were there so <laughs> so I took out all these loans and I ate beans and rice and whatever and, <clears throat> and I got it I got the I got the fellowship oh nice yeah so that was, a, that was a big turning point I was like legitimized I was like you know this crazy hippie kid whatever from Antioch actually can do it you know it was the first time I really felt like I could belong in this, right. in this world um, wow that's a pivotal year for you that's a real Darwinian struggle totally yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was a big moment. Fifty will go in, six will come out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's right. Um, it was, and you're in New York, uh, which is yes. itself a real which mind-blowing was, thing. And when was this? Late eighties, uh, early nineties. Early nineties. So, yeah, so kind of a rough place still. I I lived in New York totally. in the eighties. That's when you went on when you got on the subway, um, at night. When it wasn't crowded, you would go to a, the safety zone in front of the in, to, in front of the toll booth, mm. the token booth. There was I don't know if you go to you can see it now. No one pays any attention anymore because you don't need to. But like, still in front of every token booth, there's like this yellow and uh, black striped zone, right. which is where you can be seen by the token clerk. And usually there's cops there, mm. so you would like would huddle there and wait. You know, <laughs> like, taking like the subway was scary then. Sheep and, no, it really was, and I yeah. and I lived in New York off and on in the '80s too when I was at college, yeah. um, doing internships, and it was terrifying taking. I used to take the subway. I had an internship at the Staten Island Advance, um, and I was a Night City uh, reporter, and but I lived on the Upper East Side, <laughs> to 92nd Street Y, and I you got moved at the Y. <clears throat> yeah, 92nd Street, which was great. Yeah, and I so I I was a Night City reporter, and I would run around Staten Island at night covering stories and then I would get on the Staten Island Ferry at midnight and I'd have to get from there to the 90 to 92nd in Lexington which meant taking the ferry across the water and then taking the subway subway the entire almost the entire length of Manhattan in the at two in the morning one in the morning two in the morning and it was just like it was like being at war it was like being a commando at war yeah uh, I, that I was pre-Giuliani so that oh, yeah. you know, Giuliani really like it was Koch was he still Koch uh, was early 80s that was Dinkins Dan- no, no, David Dinkins. No, that was Koch. That was Koch, and then Dinkins later. Yeah, yeah. I lived um, 106 in Lexington. Okay, yeah, Spanish right above that. Harlem, right above that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, in '85, Ooh, that was rugged. Yeah, I was, was the was only rugged. white guy sure. anywhere in yes, that you neighborhood. Were. Yeah. And um, yeah, it was interesting. I, I got a job. Uh, this was after Alaska. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a little older than you. I got out. I finished uh, undergrad in '84. Okay. Went to Alaska in 83 and 84, and then I went to New York City, got a job in a restaurant. Hmm. Long story, but I met this guy in the restaurant one night. I was his waiter, and he ended up hiring me to be his personal assistant in the Diamond District. 
So I was, within like four months of arriving in New York, I was the right-hand man to this guy who owned three buildings in the Diamond District. <laughs> uh, Jewish guy, but yeah, not yeah. secular. They're all Jewish, yeah. Um, and I was like the only non-Jew on 47th Street. Yeah, you, you were. Know? <laughs> and, uh, and he used to bring me home because we'd work late at night, and he lived in New Rochelle. And he'd bring me home in his stretch, white Mercedes limo with tinted glass and a driver and shit. And we'd go up Lexington, and he'd drop me off on the corner 106 in Lex, where I was living in this shitty-ass apartment. And these dudes, and I was on the ground floor, and, like, the guys would bounce their basketball on my living room wall all day, you know. And it was just this horrible place. And there would be guys standing around, you know, barrel fires and stuff, and they'd see me get out of this limo. And I think the only reason I never had any trouble was, like, it must have gone out. The word went out, like, that dude's, like, the white dude's mobbed up or something. Oh, you know, right, Like, yeah. he's coming home in a limo. Right. And maybe, that, maybe the Mossad could have backed you up. I don't know, because <laughs> you, yeah. you got, like, a crash course in New York Puerto Ricans and Jews that, that year. Yeah. Well, and I worked there for two years. Wow. And then I left and went to India for, uh, or Asia for about a year and a half. And then he hired me back to be his uh, representative on a construction site in Hell's Kitchen. <laughs> so one of my jobs there was to interface with the mob. Really? Yeah. So I had like an amazing New York yeah. experience through Definitely. that guy. You know, high finance. I was managing buildings. Yeah. I was negotiating leases with Hasidic Jews. Yeah. There were all these uh, Soviet emigres in those days sure. when they could buy their way out. Yeah. They'd show up with like bags of diamonds and stuff. It was just yeah, insane. Yeah, yeah that was when, that's when normal people could still live in Manhattan. So yeah. That's when Manhattan was still had regular people and even poor people in it. Not anymore. Well, now they, they still rent control apartments. It was a handful. But yeah. I mean, when I was there in the 80s and 90s, you know, like, I had a bunch of my friends were anarchists, like, hardcore. They would squat in buildings. You know, yeah. they had no money. And the East Village was full of people like that. Well, I lived and, in the East Village when I came back from Asia. I lived uh, now, just below Houston. And now forget it. I mean, yeah, no. I mean, that was a war zone. I remember gunshots oh, yeah. at night and crazy shit. Yeah. Now, Nothing. Now it's all gentrified. Oh, yeah. Tompkins Square I think Manhattan. I think Manhattan, in particular, in New York in general, is done. I do. <laughs> I lived there for 17 years. <laughs> it's so funny, though. We're talking about it being done because it's safe, you know. Uh, it's lost no. its edge. Well, it's that, I mean, I'm not saying it's a bad place. I'm just saying it's not very interesting anymore. Right. Or much yeah. less interesting. I mean, there's certainly yeah. still stuff going on there. Right, right. But it's, you know, Manhattan, and I'm not actually denigrating it by saying this because I have nothing against rich people, but it is basically just now a playground for the rich. Sure. Which is totally fine, and good God bless them, and, you know, some of that stuff spills over to normal people. But um, it doesn't, yeah, there's not, there's no avant-garde anymore. Right. There's no avant-garde. Yeah, there's I mean, nowhere, they're, they're all in where? In the, well, and they're not even in Brooklyn anymore. In Jersey. I mean, right. I mean, there's some in Brooklyn, but even there they're getting pushed out. I mean, right. Williamsburg was that for a little while. Right. It's nearly impossible for, you know, a an artist, yeah. a true artist, who sure. just lives on their art, to right. live anywhere near that place. No, so. now they're going to Detroit. Yeah, and musicians. Yeah. It's just hard. Yeah, Detroit, right, exactly. Which, God, that... I want to go visit Detroit and see what's going on there. I mean, I read, I've read about it, and I think... Because, you know, my first book's about Detroit. It's about mm. Jimmy Hoffa. That's right, yeah. So I, I did a lot of research on Detroit and spent a lot of time there. And I have great affection for it. Um, I think, I mean, I'm not the only person who has said this, but I think 5, 10, 15 years from now, Detroit's going to be a 
fascinating place and maybe the most right. interesting city in this country. Right. And it may be the next East Village. I don't know. I mean, it seems to be that heading in that direction. But even, maybe even more interesting because it's more anarchic. Hmm. Even more anarchic um, because there's so little sort of control there and so yeah. little corporate presence and so little state presence and you know there's no almost no government right <laughs> so well now they turned off the fucking and they water. took it yeah right so it's and then you know and then the sort of the the return to agrarianism inside the city where yeah. people are actually have farms there which i'm not i don't love that but at least it's interesting and it's a new thing and it's it's very post-apocalyptic yeah but but there's it's it's i love that people are really making it happen and sort of doing stuff there and making something new happen and i just think uh, if i were 20 or 25 i would seriously consider trying it yeah because i just think it's gonna be a fascinating place yeah that's where you if you're gonna you know start Start fresh in the U.S. That's a good place to do it because you're going to meet great people there and also adventurers. And also, we're not talking about Indianapolis or Dayton. I mean, Detroit has a phenomenally rich history too. You know mm. that, that those people are building on. I mean, there's there's traditions there. There's a history there that's just amazing in so many ways. I mean, African American culture was like a capital of that. The sort of yeah, music all, and oh, everything, yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, the architecture. If you look at sort of the ruins of Detroit, it's phenomenal. Have you beautiful. seen those photos? Yeah, of the abandoned libraries. It's a and website stuff. called the Ruins of Detroit. Oh my god! I think it's called the Ruins of Detroit dot com or something like that. Yeah, uh, Bourdain. I saw. I was just going to yes. ask you about that. That was a good show. That was a great episode. Yeah. Um, he's I, Bourdain's the dude, the new show on their lawnmowers. Yeah. I actually know someone who knows the guy who was on the, the that dude on the lawnmower that Bourdain. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Interviewed. Who who like was uh, re- revitalizing the park? Yeah, he, yeah, was, yeah. he was going around cutting the, the grass parks. in various parks. Yeah. But that guy, someone told me about that guy, and they, like I've got a personal connection to him. I'm trying to remember who it was because there was a like there was a suggestion I should have him on the podcast, and then I spaced out. I haven't thought about it till just now. But that guy was. Um, he was a helicopter mechanic, <laughs> and he took his understanding of vibration, right? Because vibration is a big problem on helicopters. It has to mm-hmm. be perfectly calibrated so that, like, the right. screws don't vibrate out of it, right? Right. But he, who the hell was telling me about him? He uh, took his skills as a helicopter technician and got into sex toys. Oh my god! And made a fortune on sex toys. That guy, vibrators. That guy who's in the, the guy who's, episode. The guy who's on who's the mowing mo- lawns right. in, in exactly parks in Detroit. That's Whoever amazing. Told me this was like, yeah, you should interview him. He's like, you know, he does that and he did this, but but he's also a vibrator <laughs> expert. Like, oh yeah, I love it. Yeah, that's fantastic. Anyway, so yeah, Detroit, interesting <clears throat> place, a, um, a, a new frontier, sort of. Yeah. Hey, speaking of uh, black history, I just read something the other day, and if you're not already familiar with this, it's a good thing for a guy like you to know. Uh, uh, what was it? It was the early uh, Planned Parenthood organization. I don't remember the founders or the you know early directors. Margaret were, Sanger. <laughs> yeah, but it was after Sanger because it was someone who was talking with Malcolm X, and they were talking about um, whether or not to call their their function um, birth control. And he said, no, call it family planning. 
because hmm. black people don't want to hear about white people controlling. That's right. Right. Yeah. So Malcolm X was the one who said family planning is the right thing. Do, you know, do you know the background of that? Why that was an issue? I don't even know. It, it's Sanger. It's sang, well, it was Sanger with a lot of black leaders in the 1930s uh, opened up a lot of birth control clinics in Harlem oh. with the express right. purpose of limiting black population. Right, yeah. So, That's the, you know, Sanger, the dark side. Sanger was a hardcore Sanger. eugenicist. And, and people, you know, if you go to the Planned Parenthood website, they have this long apologia for her. Right. And so my position on Sanger, by the way, is God bless her. Thank God we had her. And I thank God she did what she did. And tremendous benefit to yeah. humanity and women and at, everybody. At great all of cost us. to herself. At she great cost. To, oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, like far outweighs anything else but she was absolutely motivated at least in part by eugenicism she was a racist right. eugenicist and hated you know she did not like poor people she did not like poor black people she wanted to limit them and that was one of the motivations now I'll still take it thanks a lot but you know we, you have to yeah. understand that that was driving that I mean she was a hardcore eugenicist I, I mean I'm going to get myself in trouble here but take out the racism and the classism I'm not so sure eugenics is such a bad thing oh my god yeah <laughs> No, and I think, you know, it, it's, it's, um, oh, here comes, uh, let's pause here. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the thing about eugenics is, uh, you ever listen to Dan, uh, Hardcore History, Dan, Dan Carlin? Some, a little bit, yeah. I, I was listening to one he did recently, a series he did about um, the, the Mongols, and you, did you hear that one? No. It's a, like it's, I think it's a four-part series. Yeah. It's really good. I listened to it on a road trip. Daniele with, told me about that. Yeah, Daniele turned me on to that yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't remember that you knew Daniele. We're good, we're good friends. He's your neighbor. He's one of my best friends. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so uh, I was listening to that with my wife on this road trip to San Francisco recently where we appeared in a porn movie, by the way. I, I saw that, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, that was amazing. Um and very interesting. We start listening to it, and she and my wife says to me, "Did I ever tell you that my mother's favorite historical figure was Genghis Khan?" It's <laughs> like no, <laughs> no, but it explains your my mother-in-law. Uh, <laughs> anyway, she's an aggressive type. I take it. Take no prisoners. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but but the beginning of that series, Dan Carlin says, "All right, here's some advice. You want to sell a lot of books." You take take the idea, run with it. You write a book about the positives that came to humanity from the Nazis. Sure. He said, and his overall point was, look, there are all these historians who are now, you know, revising our understanding of the Mongol horde, saying, well, but they made the travel safe, they linked up these different trading centers, they brought rule to an unruly area, they, yeah. you know, yada, yada, yada. Sure. And he's saying, well, you know what? The only difference between the Mongols and the Nazis from this perspective is time. It's that there are people alive now who remember people that they killed. Mm -hmm. But in a hundred years or a thousand years, they'll be the same. And, and people will be looking at the positive aspects of the Nazis the same way they look at the positive aspects of the Romans, hmm. of, you know, the settlement of the New World. And um, I don't know about that because no one moralized against the Mongols the way they mor they've moralized against the Nazis, right? 
I mean, uh, in other words, there's a, you know... There was in, no moralizing in, against these guys riding in and killing everyone? Not in the way there was against Nazis. And Nazis, I mean, you go to jail in Germany. You go to jail for saying something positive about the Nazis. Oh, I see what you're saying. I mean, well, a, but 50 years after the Mongols, you know, who knows what sort of strictures were in place. Yeah. I mean, not, I, I don't know that anyone was... It's going to take a lot of work to get certainly Westerners to <laughs> say something positive about the Nazis. But yeah. Um, well, but you can say positive is, stuff. This I mean, is, the so Nazis this is had actually, a great aesthetic. So, okay, so this is actually in my book. This is my cha- I have a chapter. In my chapter on the New Deal compares... By the, the way, say the book, the name of the book. Oh, the, A Renegade History of the United States. And it's available at everywhere. bookstores near you. Everywhere. It's available at Amazon, everywhere. Um, Ten bucks, paperback. Great book. I read it yeah. years ago, but so, I read it. Yeah, so the chapter on the New Deal compares the New Deal to Nazism and fascism. Um, and there's tremendous similarities, and that's mm-hmm. basically the argument. I do not say <laughs> that the New Deal was fascist, but it's clearly part of the same family, political family. Um, so fascism... But, sorry, go ahead. Well, so... so and I'm, I'm highly critical of both, of course. <laughs> um, but... One of the things I point out in that chapter is that both the New Deal, but especially the Nazis, did tremendous things for ordinary working class people. So, who were not Jews or gypsies or communists right. or gays. Which but, is why they were so popular. Which is exactly why they were so popular right. for the Nazis. And Hamas basically, basically had the same strategy, right? Hamas is mostly a social welfare organization. Right. They give food and schools and health care to Palestinians, and, that, you know, and that's why they're popular in, right. in, in Gaza. Um, the Nazis had amazing sort of vacation programs right. for spas they had they built yeah. these sports stadiums you know they had spas they gave you know tremendous sort of leisure activities to working class people they had, the social welfare programs were amazing free health care there was almost no unemployment in the 30s in germany um and that's after and they, uh, the, the decade before was wipe out inflation depression. and incredible yeah, horrible depression. conditions. Yeah. yeah. So and you know built roads and bridges and s- schools and you know they yeah. modernized Germany basically in many ways. So sure, of course. Um, now, <laughs> you know the question is you know it's a cost benefit thing, right? Right. <laughs> uh, and 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 I mean not just obviously for Jews there was none of that no benefits there, um, but even for ordinary Germans at the time. To me, and I think a lot of people, there were tremendous costs as well, which were personal freedom. Yeah. I mean, you know, that's, that was kind of the trade-off, right? You regimented yourself. You became literally part of a uh, military, right, a killing machine and a death machine. Um, you were very likely to die. But there was regiment, tremendous regimentation in ordinary Germans' lives during that period, right? So that's what the, that's what the And there was the same thing going on in the United States, which we've talked about, mm-hmm. uh, to a lesser extent, but it was certainly very, very similar. There was a tremendous regimentation of American culture in the 1930s and 1940s, which people don't talk about nearly enough. Yeah. But, um... Yeah. Oh, so eugenics. the Mongols. Well, eugenics. Well, yeah, defend, eugen- so you're going to defend eugenics. Well, you know, you, you brought up the, the phrase cost-benefit analysis, <clears throat> yes. right? And, and the thing is that since the Nazis, you can't talk about cost-benefit analyses right. in terms of medical care. You know, the United States... The, the, you know, they, they talk about death panels with the whole Obamacare thing and everyone. Oh, death panels, death panels. Well, at some point, somehow, decisions are Thank made. Thank you. 
Thank you. Right. Right on. Totally. About allocating exactly. resources. Of course. Right. Because there are not infinite resources right. and there's infinite needs. So right. Sarah Palin was not crazy when she said that, actually. Well, no, I wouldn't go she's, that far. She's well, crazy when she says anything. No, no, no. But that's who, that's who said that was Sarah Palin. I, I I'm know. saying about that. I she know. was right. Okay. Well, I will never agree that Sarah Palin was right about it. But anything. you just agree with her. Litter. No, she used a phrase that I'm saying. <laughs> but you're, you're admitting that there are death panels, basically. I'm admitting that... There have the, to be. The, the, there have the, to be. I would never call them death panels. I would say there, you know, there's allocation of medical resources. Rationing. There's rationing. And, but what we're doing, we're like the bus driver who says... <clears throat> You know what? I, I might uh, make an accident and wreck the bus, so I'm just going to like take my hands off the wheel and let it happen. Let, let happen whatever happens, because at least he can't blame me. That's what our political system is right now. That's why everything's stopped in Washington. Nobody's taking responsibility. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. So nobody's driving the fucking bus, and we're definitely going to go over the fucking cliff. At that <laughs> so, you know, def- I read somewhere recently we spend, I don't remember if it was 40 or 50% of all medical expenditures are in the last six to nine months of life. Oh, yeah. Like, what the fuck is that? That's ridiculous. That's the stupidest possible way to do this. And the reason it's happening is because nobody is taking any sort of political uh, risk to say, we need to do this intentionally. We need to make decisions. Now we're just saying, oh, I didn't do it, so it's just the way it happens. Hmm. So we end up with the, the worst possible system, right? Because of people like Sarah Palin who are demonizing the notion of somebody somewhere making those sorts of oh. decisions. Oh, you're for death panels. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Exactly. Now I got it. Exactly. Oh, and you're a eugenicist. So exactly. What, so basically we should have death panels. And that if, would, that if will you kill keep the, banging this table, kill, I'm sorry. you're going to get so much hate I'm mail. Sorry. I encourage everyone listening I'm to this sorry. to it's send my, your hate mail. I'll tell you, it's not the first podcast I've done that on. I, I, I do bang tables. I don't know why. You're I'm a table sorry. banger. I know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I get excited. I, I, I think you. that that. So you want to, and you want to have poor people killed by the death panel? No. Oh well, that's what are you? No, I want to have old sick people killed. No, okay. eugenics is not saying kill poor people. Yeah, eugenics is. is saying kill people who are unfit. <laughs> now. At some point, you could, you know, the Nazis said, well, the unfit are the gays and the Jews and the gypsies. Uh, Emma Goldman apparently was saying the unfit are Mar- poor black people. Mar- no, Margaret Sanger. Oh, Mar- Margaret Emma Sanger. Emma was not a eugenicist. Oh, sorry. She was. Sanger. Yeah, uh, right. Sanger. Um, you know, so, so it, it, that's the problem with it. The, the notion itself that some decision needs to be made about where uh, resources are allocated becomes demonized by people like Sarah Palin who don't, don't know her fucking ass from her elbow. And and that increases the cost for somebody to step up and say, it's true, we need to make decisions here. So euthanasia, oh, you can't have euthanasia because then they'll, they'll come for grandma. They're going to come and kill everybody. Come on. We need to face the reality that people die. People are going to continue to die. Mm-hmm. We're never going to win the war on death. Yeah. And so let's figure out how to retreat right. orderly and well, and deal with death in a way that makes sense. And we can't deal with it in a way that makes sense as long as there are people like Sarah Palin freaking out and getting everybody up in okay. arms about so, it. Uh, so you know, fuck very, Sarah Palin. No, no, no. I mean, okay, look, I have very few things good to say about Sarah Palin. I'm not here to defend her, but I actually thought she had a point there. Um, I think she tapped into a very genuine fear that I share with many people. Um that those decisions about who will live and who will die that you're referring to 
will be made by by government bureaucrats in Washington, D.C. You prefer to have them made by insurance bureaucrats I, in well, Yes, I would. No, but yes. Hartford, Yes, but not under the current system. So well. the problem with the current system, as I see it, um, is that there is very little competition among healthcare providers and insurance companies, uh, that there's all these regulations. So that prevent them from competing against each other, which jacks up prices and basically gives them tremendous power over us, which makes most people's hospital experiences pretty poor. Um, so, for instance, um, states prevent insurance companies from competing across state lines, right? right? So you, there's a limited pool of health insurance companies you can choose from as a consumer, right? Well, that sucks, right? That gives those fucking health insurance companies all kinds of power over us, which we all know and hate, right? Um, you know, and the, sort of the licensing of doctors and the licensing of hospitals and all that sure. stuff. I mean, I, I suppose I want some licensing, but the AMA has a lockdown enforced by state regulation, mm -hmm. right? And so it's very difficult to compete with those fuckers, right? And so that that goes for alternative medicine, Eastern medicine, just and just any new kind of medicine. Drug patents, right? That is killing people and has for, you know, asking an AIDS, someone who had AIDS in the 1980s mm -hmm. about that. And the FDA and all those sure. regulations stopping sure. competition uh, among those corporations and medical professions who basically run our lives and destroy and make life. I just went to get an MRI just a, you know, half an hour ago and it was like, you know, not pleasant, but, and they just have so much power over you yeah. and, and, and mostly it jacks up prices. That's why we spend yeah. so much money but, on healthcare. But the problem is, so I would rather, so, so really quickly, yeah, I'd rather yeah. have, I'd rather have, I'd rather have a truly competitive market mm -hmm. make the decisions. Right than Obama's 10 appointed officials in right. that building in Washington, D.C. Okay, D. but that's like saying HHS. I'd rather have, you know, flying llamas than unicorns, right? It doesn't, neither one of those options exists. You're not, you don't have a free oh. co competitive environment. Well, no, but it's a, it's a question of which direction do you want to move in? Where do you, what do you want to get closer to? So Obamacare, in my view, is like possibly the worst possible combination. I mean, well, I'd say it's slightly better than the previous worst combination of things. Right? The system before... Because of 30 yeah, million these, people who aren't being left to die now. Well, right. So it's slightly better, but it's essentially a Slight? Uh, Slight? And I'm a bad guy for talking about eugenics? You're leaving 30 million people <laughs> to die in the streets. Wait, wait, wait. Who died in the streets before this? Well, no one. <laughs> No one died you, in the United no one, States of America? No one died in the streets? Not from lack of What America do you live in? Come on, man. No one dies Who died from in, lack of health care in no. this country? Are no, you not, kidding me? No one me? died in the streets. You could go to it. It was not a great system, but no one died in the streets. People went to emergency rooms. That was a the whole problem. Millions of people have died in the streets of America. Are you serious? Holy shit. No. Dude. No. <laughs> if you don't have insurance and you've got cancer, okay, you've got cancer. Yeah. You gonna go to the emergency room for your chemo? That's what people How's that no they didn't. Emergency rooms don't do chemo. You don't get chemo if you don't have insurance. You go home and you die. That's how it works. Or you can, you know, sell your house and use whatever money you have to pay for the first few treatments of chemo and then you die. People lots of people die in the streets. Uh, 
Not that I'm aware of. I have not seen any evidence of that. But anyway. Well, wait mean, a minute. Well, no, people, then, then refute what I just said. Hospitals You've got, are obligated to... It was no, shitty. Ho- it was no, not no, good. But hospital, they, were obli- they were legally obligated to treat anyone who enters their building. No, they're not. Is they're there, obligated. You didn't hear about these hospitals in L.A. taking people, putting them in taxis and dropping them off in Skid Row? Right, but they're legally obligated to, and that's usually that's we all know. Wait, hold on, we all know that's how poor people were getting their health care, which was not good. Poor people were getting w- emergency health care. Okay, they weren't I, getting preventive I, care, and they weren't getting I agree. treated oh, no, I for agree. any chronic condition. I agree. So if you've got an aneurysm, <clears throat> so Chris, or you need uh, Chris, bypass surgery, you've been in lots of countries in this world where yeah. you literally saw people dying in the streets, right? If you go to Calcutta, you see people literally dead in the street. You see bodies, right? You see I was in dying I was in downtown dead. L.A. yesterday. There were people lying in the street who may have been dead, wow. and no one okay. would notice. We both agree. Yeah. Shitty system, yeah. both before Obamacare, and I would just say now Obamacare is a little bit better. If you think it's a lot better, I don't know. I mean, no one's really going to agree with you. Well, no one. I mean, liberals no. don't like it. Right. Oh, there, like there are a I mean, lot of things not to like about it, but 30 million people getting okay. insurance now Fine. who didn't have it Fine. before, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. that's a big deal. I, I get, yes, yes. That's I'll, a really big deal. I'll, I'll yeah. Say, yeah, I agree with that. But overall, it was written by it was written by big pharma companies yeah. and health insurance companies. That's true. So guess who it's serving primarily? Well, that's what I was going to ask you before. Like, <laughs> Which is called, basically, you know, that, that system of governance is called corporatism, right? Which is, is How's corporatism different from fascism? Right. Oh, it's not. All right. Yeah. So my notes here. Corporate government fascism. That's what I wanted to ask you about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we talked about this uh, a year ago. Yeah. yeah. So corporatism is the, and this is everyone. This is not my crazy theory. This is generally agreed upon. Corporatism is the is the economic philosophy that that is at the core of fascism. It's sort of the original core philosophy that became right. fascism. So it comes out of the Catholic Church in the 19th century, late 19th century. How does it come it, out of the Catholic Church? Uh, uh, the Pope, Leo XIII, uh, wrote the Rerum, Rerum Novarum, which was an encyclical, 1893, I believe. It was definitely 1890s. In which he said that co- companies, businesses, should operate like families. So the, the boss, the employer, treats his employers like children, and the children should express, should behave with the same loyalty toward the boss as they would toward their father. That that applies also to the nation state, so that the head of state should treat the citizens as children, and the children should be loyal to the head of state. This may start to sound like fascism, right? Uh, as the uh, loyalty, that's to like a father, right? right? <clears throat> right. So he wrote that, and that fascists in Italy, right, subsequent to that, took this idea up. And they added, and he was also very, the uh, Pope was very sort of nationalistic as well, right? So the fascists sort of took that doctrine and made that the center of fascism. In Italy, this is before the Nazis tacked on the anti-Semitic stuff. The right. Nazism really is is not really pure fascism. They sort of added on all these things. The, a lot of the racial stuff was really added on by right. the Nazis. The original Italian fascists were less interested in that. Um they were really interested in a powerful nation state that operates as a corpus, a body, single corpus, right? So like a family. Right. right. So head of state is dad and the citizens are children and everybody's loyal. There's no class conflict. That was the point. That's what they were driving at. That's what the Pope was driving at and the original uh, fascist was driving okay. at. Because there was tremendous class conflict in Italy and of course across Europe and America right. at the time, right? Industrialization's going on, massive right. strikes, socialists, communists all over the place, right. anarchists killing, fighting their bosses. <clears throat> so he said, this is what we got to do. Get rid of that shit. You got to realize you're an Italian. 
You're not a worker. You're not a boss. You're an mm. Italian, first and foremost. So and your loyalty is to that. Right. First and foremost. So everyone, and this, this was applied to bosses too. So bankers in Italy, Italy and in Germany, especially in Germany, who refused to go along with this, mm. who just wanted to make a buck and didn't want, didn't want to serve the nation state, were taken out and shot. <laughs> or they were dispossessed, right. or they were thrown in jail, or exiled, or what you know. So that they were hardcore with even the capitalists. Not all of them. The capitalists who went along with it and said, "Yes, I will convert my factory to making tanks," for instance, for right. the war effort. They were cool, and they did great with the Nazis. Right? right. So that's that's corporatism. Is 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 this cooperation as a family or a body, a single body corpus, right? Uh, in economics and in politics. Is that where the word corporation comes from? No. Well, right, it's a separate... Corporation is, it precedes this. I mean, corporation in, is early 19th Incorporate century. is to yeah, join it's, it's as a sing, right? single body, but it's a diff, very different Have you I, seen that idea. documentary, The Corporation? No. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, so corporatism, this idea, and it was called that at the time, became very popular among the original Italian fascists, later the, the German fascists who became the Nazis, and then also uh, progressives here, and especially the New Dealers. So the New Deal was absolutely corporatist, especially the early New Deal. If you look at the first two, two, two years of the New Deal, they established an economic system run by the federal government that was virtually identical to the economic systems in Italy and Germany which was this, that every major industry in this country, steel, railroads, oil, all of it, rubber, um, were, they suspended antitrust laws. They forced, required the heads of the major businesses in all those industries to literally sit at a table with officials from the federal government and establish what the prices would be in that industry, what the wages would be in that industry, mm. what they would make in that industry, and how much of what they would, how much of that they would make in that industry. And this is before the U.S. Went, entered the war. This is in 1933 and 34 and th- early 35. This right. is in the United States of America. This was exactly the system instituted in Germany and Italy at the same time. Right. So clearly, totally anti-democratic. Yeah. Totally giving massive power to in, the businesses, right, and the federal government. Right. Uh, taking all power away from the consumers because there's zero competition now. Yeah. So they established cartels right. Right, um, in those industries. Now that was classic, that's classic economic corporatism. So to what extent was that uh, a response? Because as you say, this is following the same developments in Italy and, and Germany. To what extent is that the United States government saying, we got to get shit organized because there's a war coming? Well, this is before the war. This is before the war is in the offing. This is in, this, in response to the Depression. Right. So it's in a response to the Depression, but it's most historians sort of on the left and on the libertarian side view it as really a response to incipient radicalism <laughs> and incipient right. class struggle. Right. So you see at this very moment, 33, 34, hardcore mass violent strikes right. where they shut down entire cities in San Francisco in Seattle in Toledo Ohio right. general strikes for organized weeks labor yeah. where entire cities are shut down by workers who are organizing who are getting getting finally getting paid right, right. or trying to get paid so it's really seen as an attempt to quell that class struggle um, and there was also there was a theory you know 
that this would also stabilize the economy and save capitalism. Right. Yeah. So this is a, by the way, this is a left wing argument that I'm making. You uh-huh. know? I mean, this is, I mean, libertarians subscribe to it as well, but both my left wing side and my libertarian side like this argument, and it makes sense having studied all the evidence. Yeah. And if you look at, I mean, if you, but if you just look at the New Dealers talking at the time, especially in private correspondence, which we have access to, I mean, they're basically saying this. They're, they're not saying, you know, well, it's to really help the working man. I mean, it's saying we, we've, got to, we've got to save the system or else we're all fucked. Well, no one ever helps the working man until they have to. <laughs> exactly. Right? No one ever, you know, exactly. in, in business negotiations, you don't give, give your workers shit unless it's in your interest. Exactly. So the, yeah. so the right, so the interest for me and many people, the primary necessary interest of both a corporation, a business... And the state government is control. Control of behavior, yep. control of thought, all yeah. of it. Right. Yeah. So if they could, if they. Well, and why? Why is control so important? Because without controlling us and our individual desires and our erratic behaviors and, you know, mm-hmm. all the things we'd rather be doing than working or yeah. being in an army, uh-huh. they don't exist. Right, exactly. It's yeah. for their own. And this is an argument I'm So making. it's necessary. So it's not. So what I like to yeah. say is it's not that. I, I don't like to call. Even people I really can't stand, I mean, even like presidents and generals and CEOs, you know, right. I don't like to moralize and call them evil. Right. What I think is much more important and useful is to understand that their behavior is necessary for their own position, right? Right. Precisely. Now, you may not like them for choosing to take that position, but, um, but, but they must do that. But ultimately, it doesn't matter because you're right. They must do that because if, the, if a good guy somehow through some weird fluke becomes the CEO of Exxon Mm -hmm. and says, you know what? Uh, Our technology really uh, isn't advanced enough for us to be drilling in deep sea wells because that shit that happened in the Gulf could happen anytime and we're not going to be able to handle it. So we're going to suspend drilling in deep sea wells. He will not be the CEO of Exxon tomorrow morning. Exactly. Right? So I agree with you completely. To say that guy's evil misses the point entirely. That guy doesn't matter. And that's why these advertisements, you know, here at Exxon, we believe, wait a minute. First of all, the guy who's talking, you don't work at Exxon, you're an actor, right? And whoever wrote that was some PR consultant, you know, hired by Exxon to write this campaign. And Exxon will replace... Exxon. Whoever doesn't do the job exactly. with another one. So yeah. No, so anytime I get into these arguments and people say, oh, but there are good people who work in that company. It doesn't, doesn't matter. matter. Right. There are good people. There were good Nazis. Sure. There are good guys running concentration camps. Sure. Uh, I just yeah. read um, Man's Search for Meaning, and he talks about yeah. that. Yeah. Even yeah. read that, yeah. Victor yeah. Frankl. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and so it's, I agree with you 100%. It's, these are systems that, like all systems, want to survive. Sure. They, they want to replicate. They want to grow. They're like animals, right? Yeah. They kill because they must. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, like so, some animals. So for, yeah. Now, the yeah. difference between uh, states and corporations and animals is that states and corporate, it's not in the interest of states and corporations to kill their own people, usually, unless they must, unless the people are so disruptive. But right, no, but it's because none of it. It makes need, good business. No, no, no. It dep- no, because they need workers, right? But they've they got a workers. surplus of workers. They need workers. That's so why they yeah, want they everybody kill, to have babies. But there's only so many they can get rid of, right? They, they can't kill all of them. Yeah. So what they do is, and we know this very well in the United States, those who refuse to abide by their rules, who are unruly, 
they usually don't kill them anymore, but they put them in prison. So that's mm-hmm. why we have two million people for in profit prisons. Yeah. Well, most of them are not, but whatever, whatever the prison is, that's why those people are in there, right? Those are that's my view of who they are. Those are people who basically refuse to abide by the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, corporations need workers, right? And and the state needs workers and soldiers and cops and all that stuff. So they can't just go killing everybody. Now that's what. That's what regimes that have been unsuccessful have done, right? So if you look at Pol Pot, for instance, Mm. or Stalin, for instance, or Hitler, for instance, what happened to those guys? They didn't last very long, right? Stalin? Because they killed... Well, I mean, that regime... Stalin was that in regime charge had a, for 40 years. Se, well, it's a 70-year regime, but that's not yeah. much in the history of regimes. Oh, you're talking about Soviets in yeah, general. Yeah, Soviets in general. Yeah. Stalin was, of course, the leader. I mean, the major person who killed people. But that was not a great way to establish a stable regime. People hated Stalin's guts by the 1950s, right? Yeah. For the most part, right? It wasn't like there was this tremendous loyalty to the guy, because they understood. It was, it was loyalty based only on fear. Right. Like Genghis Khan, you should yeah. really listen to those things. Right. It's very interesting yeah. so, the parallel. So that I mean, this is this is Foucault's argument, right? Which is that that kind of rule, which is very much a pre-modern rule, mm. where you just cut off the head of anybody who raises their voice against you, is effective to an extent, but it is far less effective than getting people to buy in voluntarily to the power. Well, at least they think it's voluntarily. Well. I mean, I, okay. the way we're all hoodwinked now saying, well, you know, I like Obama better uh, than McCain, so, you know... Like, no, see, I think as much as I hate exactly that, what you just said, uh-huh. I mean, I've been... No one hates the Obama phenomenon more than Thaddeus Russell, but... Um, and the people who have bought into it blindly. I, no, I think it's it's real. I think it's genuine. I think that they what really see... The choice? Their love of him. <laughs> oh, no, I'm, I'm <laughs> saying that it's presented... People in the United States and, and some other so-called democracies think they have a choice. But what they don't understand is that there are only two items on the menu, oh, none sure. of which is good for you. Absolutely. So yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. okay, you can pick the like complete lunatic right-winger, yeah. you know, McCain, right. or you can pick a guy the, who's the a slightly nice guy. less lunatic right-winger. But they're, but they're both... <laughs> yeah. I mean, sure. you know, the yeah. Frank Zappa line, right? That uh, politics is the entertainment division of the military industrial yeah, complex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, I completely agree with that. And that, to me, is the major, the major problem with the electoral system in this country is that we just don't have real choice. And no. I, I want to have 50 or 100 parties. I want to have, you know, fascist parties and communist parties. I want, the, I want every, I want the full buffet menu out yeah. there. I do. Have you heard about this, this thing about, uh, what was it called, the, the breaking up California into yeah, seven six, different things? six or seven, six. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I like it. I think it's a great idea. I like it. I'm all for it. I, I think, think it's the only way that government is going to work yeah. anymore is like to break it into smaller I units. I agree. Good. Balkanize yeah. the shit out of this. Yeah, man. Bitch. Decentralization. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what do you think? No, about- no, no. But I was going to oh, say, sorry, no, I mean, I think, yes, yes, yes. I totally agree with that wholeheartedly. But I'm just saying, I think that, I think that people, people had agency. People really did make a choice. I really do think they genuine Obama really appealed to something real in people like I think that it wasn't just sort of foisted upon them like we've had this argument about uh, commercials and advertising right I think the same thing applies there which is that it's not tricking people it's not I don't believe it's tricking people in either case I think it's actually they're they're forced to depending on the amount of competition they're facing they're forced to find the thing that we want genuinely Right, so I think that the Democratic Party 
because they had some competition, not enough, but some competition, finally came up with this formula in this black guy that they knew people would want, that people would really relate to when they were right. There was an amazing emotional connection to that, which I think was pseudo-fascist, by the way, or semi-fascist, but in a terrible disaster in many ways. But I got it. I understood it, especially for black people and a few others. But like, I, I don't. I don't think it was. I don't think it was them being tricked. I think there was a genuine thing that they t- that they bought into. I mean, I think it was all sort of on the sur- on the level of sort of psychological benefits, right? And it wasn't it had nothing to do with policy because they didn't even know what he stood for until they until they started mm. killing children in Pakistan. <laughs> but um, no, I think it's real. I think I think it's real. I think the, the more choice, but just yeah. I'm just saying, the yeah. more choice we have, the more competition, the more that they have to compete both politicians and corporations, the more that they, that they have to compete for us, for our patronage, the better we are. The, more, the, be, the better they will serve us. That's, that's my argument. Yeah. That's my argument. And it applies to both politics and business, right? Yeah. You just don't want monopolies. You don't want duopolies. You want as much competition as possible. Right, which is about balkanization of corporate power. Totally. Right. Break them all down. Yeah. Don't give them any subsidies. Right. Don't give them any protections. Right. Don't help them one fucking right. bit. But Make them fight tooth and nail. Now, here's the macro for picture. Us. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's got the power to do that? <clears throat> I don't think anybody does. I think corp- the corporate power has taken over governmental power to the point where I know, this government was, is a facade. This was our fight a year ago. Yeah. yeah I and, and I would argue, I mean, to, to respond to the thing about tricks, I would argue that you're right that it's the connection is real, right? That, that the country, at least a big part of the country, was ready for a smart, good-looking, kind-hearted black guy mm-hmm. to be president, right? right? Yeah. Definitely. Um, but it is a trick because the country, when I was a kid, I remember the ads for um, margarine, the healthy option. Right. And there were things on the cover, you know, flowers and green fields and, you know, sunrise. And it was all country fresh margarine, the healthy, low fat option. Now, I my connection to wanting to be healthy, Mm -hmm. low fat, you know, these that was a real connection, just like my connection to Obama is a real connection. But as you say, this has nothing to do with policy. And it turns out that margarine is industrial shit Mm -hmm. that's way worse for you than butter. Right. So. Yes, there's a real relationship with the symbols that are used to sell you something that has nothing to do with that relationship. Right, and so this is called market discovery. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> right? Which yeah. is why it's a well, trick. So in both, in both cases, both with Marjorie and Obama, <laughs> a lot of those people found out yeah. that they were actually bullshit and actually opposed right. to their interests, right? Marjorie makes you fat and Obama does all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I, but I think Obama... Spies on you and kills but, people. But see, that's why I think Obama... That, that's what I'm saying. I think we're in the post-governmental historical era. God, I hope so. I, but I think it's worse. Oh. Because <laughs> at least in the governmental era, there was a countervailing force against corporations. And I think yeah. that what's yeah. happened now is the corporations have so okay. dominated the political process that it's an empty okay. puppet show. So we went back and forth a year ago about who has the ultimate power, the state or the corporations. And my argument, my Trump argument, which is the winning argument. All right, let's hear your Trump argument. Yeah, no, so that you know, we had this argument a year ago about who holds the ultimate power 
in the relationship between government and corporations. And corporations certainly are very powerful institutions in this country, but they do not have, as I said to you last year, they do not have armies and police and prisons. Google does not have tanks. They can't roll up to my house and throw me in, in jail. Well, okay. So you want to hear, and, and, you and, and, hear my hold response? On, wait, hold on. I'm not Do done. I get a Trump hold on, response? Hold on, I'm not done. I'm not done. <laughs> and if you look at now and history, uh-huh. you will see the government, both the federal and state and city governments, picking and choosing among corporations they will favor, right? They don't favor all of them. They don't favor all of them. Yeah. They, they give massive subsidies and benefits to some. And they have dispossessed others. They have seized property from others. They have regulated many out of business. They have sued many huge corporations like Microsoft and Apple, right, for antitrust, right? They have taken billions of dollars. They have taken, stolen, you could say, billions of dollars from some corporations and not others. Um, They have helped some corporations with tariffs uh, expand their operations abroad, but not others, mm-hmm. or at the expense of others. There's, here's a great phrase I want you to check out. Okay. It's one of my very favorite phrases. This is something everybody on the left should study, and there's no reason for them not to embrace it, which is this, regulatory capture. Okay, So this is, the, this is an idea that, and it's absolutely been proven, I mean, there's no question this happens, um, that many, possibly most, regulations of businesses by government essentially establish bars to entry for competitors. So that ends up they favor the incumbent existing Mm -hmm. dominant business in that industry, right? And make it very difficult for competitors to enter. Right. That's why that's why your cable service sucks ass. Okay? Because the state and city have all sorts of regulations. You can't dig up the dirt and put cables in to compete with Time Warner. That's why Time Warner is the worst corporation. Aren't you arguing against yourself here? Because the first part was that local governments are favoring some and others not and and picking and choosing between them. Therefore, there is competition between. But then the regulatory capture, you're saying competition is actually squelched by government uh, intervention, favoring a monopolistic or duopolistic uh, situation. Right. And so that's why I look at the United States, fucking shitty internet service, to yep. use your example. Absolutely. Most expensive in the world. Yep. Even in Spain, which is a socialist government most of the time, it's far more competitive than okay. it is yeah, here. exactly. Right? Yeah. So in that sense, I look at that and I say, okay, well, that's because corporations, some of them, and I take your point. I think you're right. There is competition on some levels, but... no. Not enough. No, absolutely. And corporations yeah. are have co-opted the governmental process for their own benefits. Yeah, no, no. But I'm, my point was that the government has has chosen among all these very powerful corporations and decided they'll give they'll give protection to Time Warner, right? But not to Comcast, <laughs> or vice right. versa, right? Or to Time, Time Warner and to no one else. It right. is in basically impossible to compete against Time Warner where I am sitting right now. Right. You cannot get cable unless it's through Time Warner, which right. is the most laughably terrible corporation I've ever dealt with. Right. So, And that is because of the government. So my point is that it's the, it, I'm getting to the question of who holds the ultimate power. Yeah. Corporations are the government, right? So if, they all, if corporations really ran the joint, ultimately, yeah. ultimately they, Comcast would be competing with Time Warner right now. Not 
necessarily not if Time Warner runs the local government that why gave would, them the monopoly. No, but why would Time Warner have particular favor among government and not Comcast? They're both giant multinational corporations. Well, with, they've, they've, with infinite money. Well, they've obviously they've chopped up the market in a way that benefits both of them. No, but the governments choose. See, I, I don't think you say government and corporations as if they're two distinct things. <laughs> and what I see is the CEO of General Electric becomes the Secretary of Defense. Totally. And then the Assistant Secretary of Defense becomes totally. the, you know. I see this revolving okay. door. So this is where we may come to, to a common understanding, common agreement. That is corporatism. Right. Okay. Right. That absolutely happens. That is classic corporatism. So Obamacare is classic corporatism. I mean, the health insurance companies and the pharmaceutical companies literally came to the White House and literally wrote that motherfucking law. Okay. (laughs) Um, Now, and as you say, there's this revolving door between lobbyists and, you know, and corporate CEO positions. Right. But the government chooses which corporations to come in to the White House to write those laws. But again, you use the word government as if it's something that exists but, but separate they, they from chose, that corporate But they influence. chose certain corporations. They? Who's they? The, the executive branch, <laughs> I mean, and Cong- congressional committees. Right. They, they choose certain corporate and, and local government, you know, absolutely. They do this even more. Maybe. Right. They choose particular companies to come in and write legislation right. and don't allow other companies to write. And right. many of those legislation and many of those regulations hurt or even put out of business all sorts of corporations, big right. and small. Right. So Yeah, I, I look at it and I see so much corporate funding of politics, right? You know, and Supreme yeah. Court decisions that make it even easier for them. And I to me this distinction between government and corporations just starts to evaporate. Well, see, it dissipates into nothing. Well, I mean, so corporate yes, so to ex- I almost agree with you in that this is corporatism. Right? Think this, of the Reagan. These, these are these are yeah. hang on. These yeah. are these are they are acting as a single corpus, a single body. This is yeah. corporatism. I'm saying that who decides ultimately how that's configured? I don't is, think is, anyone does. Is the is the government? But yeah, see, yeah. But because see, no, and here's why. Because again, yeah. because again, uh-huh. Los Angeles County that gives Time Warner this monopoly has cops with guns, and they have prisons, right? So if right. I go, if right. I go, or uh-huh. you and I go and establish a new, uh, new cable company, and we're going to compete against Time Warner, and we start selling cable service, and we start laying cable into people's houses, we will literally be taken at the point of a gun to jail. Right. Right? A, the state, this is Max Weber's classic definition, which any social scientist, and by, by the way, Obama has said this too, so this is not some crazy theory, the state is this. It is the monopoly on violence. Okay, it is that. That is what a state is. It has. Right. It has the monopoly on violence. Yeah. Right. So that is what corporations do not have. Well, see again, my Trump response to that <laughs> is um, the United Fruit Company. Okay. Yeah. We're talking about Central I'm, American I'm, I'm history. I'm writing about this right now okay. in my new book, yeah. So yeah. we're talking about Central American history earlier in the Reagan years and all that. Yeah. But, you know, in the 1950s, right? The, mm-hmm. What was his name? Arbenz. Arbenz, 1954. Right. Yeah. So Arbenz is elected, free elections, yep. president of Guatemala, and he says we're going to nationalize these farms mm-hmm. that this American company came in, took over all this land. United Fruit. 
pushed all these squatters off their own land that they'd been living on, mm-hmm. gave them shitty jobs picking bananas. The only food they could buy was using United Fruit Company currency that was only yeah. spendable in United Fruit Company stores. It's <clears throat> fucking slavery is what it is. Well, okay. All right. Well, that's... Okay, I, yeah. but get to my... Then, yeah, but so that's my point is that United Fruit Company says this is, this is not acceptable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So mm-hmm. what happens? Our Benz gets overthrown, killed. The, com- the country's taken over. Who did that? The CIA. Yep. Now, you're saying, well, that's the government. Companies don't have armies. They do have armies. No. They have the American right. army. They have those right. guys who the fucking, um, what do they call themselves now? They changed their name. The, you know, Jeremy Scahill's whole thing about um, the, the mercenary. Oh, uh, uh, Blackwater. Blackwater, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, come yeah. on. That's that's a corporate army right yeah. there. And, yeah. you know, the, the Belgians in the Congo? Right. Come on. That's ivory, right? So the, Right. The armies work for the companies yeah. through the government. Yeah, so no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Come on, okay. Iran, so, who uh, overthrew the fucking Iran? Yeah, totally. You know? I, I just was British on TV. British Petroleum. I did, today I was on TV talking about that very thing. Yeah. And Guatemala today. I talked about both. Um, uh, no, that's not right. Um, the reason that, the reason, and you can ask, you can ask Dwight Eisenhower, because he said it at the time, and all of his advisors, the reason they went into Guatemala and into Iran at the time with the CIA and overthrew those democratically elected um, governments to the benefit of the, I forget the name of the Anglo, British, right. the, the British Petroleum, Petroleum Company yeah. and United Fruit in Guatemala was not because they wanted to save a particular, any old American corporation. It was because they viewed those regimes as being potentially sympathetic to the Soviet Union. That is oh, what they come said. On. That's, of well, course, that's what they said. No, and they believed it. They believed it. No, they didn't well, believe it. Of course, it. they believed it. Well, so first of all, Mossadegh was taking arms from the Soviet Union. Arbenz had not yet, but he seemed to be a socialist. They may have been wrong. And they may have been wrong, uh-huh. but it's not. It wasn't stupid. The Dulles brothers weren't stupid. They're the ones who engineered all this shit. They weren't stupid. I mean, Arbenz, with a hostile American government. And, you know, sort of this semi-socialist guy in, in this Central American banana republic is going to need some help. Who's the only power that's going to help him? It's the Soviet Union. So that was their analysis. It may have been wrong, but that's, that, my point is that was their motivation. That was their motivation. It was geopolitical strategy. It was power. It was control over a region. Now, hang on. I will give you this. Corporations, major net multinational corporations, are absolutely have been a vehicle for national state power, the expansion of it, right? So in part, Eisenhower and his advisors saw United Fruit and saw the oil companies in the Middle East as a vehicle through which to extend national power in those areas, right? You can't be an international imperialist power without economic power in those places. My point is that it wasn't, it's not the, pr- the primary driver of imperialism is not the businesses. In fact, you'll see businesses have more often opposed war, by the way. If you look at the Spanish-American War, World War I, even World War II, they usually oppose the war because it's very disruptive for business. It's hard to sell things when your people are killing it, when there's ships in the oceans shooting mm-hmm. at each other, right? Um, but 
they are very interested and always have been, yes, in expanding American economic power through corporations and, and opening markets and resources. controlling markets and controlling resources. Yeah. Totally, absolutely, always. I'm just saying that that has been driven primarily by a desire by federal government officials from the presidents down mm-hmm. to simply expand American national power by any means necessary. It just so happens that economic power is a very important part of that. But those guys, so a lot of my book that I'm writing mm. now, it's about, a lot of it is about the psychology of the great American imperialists mm-hmm. from Teddy Roosevelt onward, right? And it's clear as a bell to me, they hated capitalists because capitalists, Teddy Roosevelt railed against capitalists. Woodrow Wilson didn't like them at all. He didn't trust them because capitalists are interested in only one thing, profit. They're not interested in the United States of America. They don't give a shit about national power right. unless it serves them. And often it doesn't serve them. Right. right? So they're, they're just, there's this amazing psychology that I'm just fascinated by. And Max Weber talked about this, the psychology of people who want to control the world, right? And there's just, the, there's just some people, usually white men from Northern Europe or the United States, who have wanted to control the world sort of as these great patriarchal figures. They've just been driven by that. And mm-hmm. they've had two choices, right? If you really want to do that, if you really want to have dominion over much of the world, you have two choices historically. One is to establish a giant corporation like John D. Rockefeller or Andrew Carnegie. Those guys were driven not by, not by uh, a desire to get rich because they didn't have any fun. They sat and worked all the time. They yeah. were the most severe, uptight, repressed dudes in the whole wide world. They were Calvinists. But they had tremendous power over the world yeah. by establishing these giant these giant businesses. So right? what was their gratification? And the other one and the other one is to run for office <laughs> and gain control of state power. And then you can really run some shit. You can really go out there. And this is what Teddy Roosevelt talked about all the time, Woodrow Wilson, FDR, all of the Kennedy, all of yeah. them. They all were really interested. And George W. Bush, too, right? George W. Bush and Dick Cheney took giant pay cuts to go to run to become government officials. That was the dumbest thing in the world if you just want to get rich, right? They did the opposite of what you should do if you just want to get rich. Well, they were both already rich. Those, exactly. Those cats wanted to run stuff. They wanted to control people, in my view. There's a psychology in some people who become CEOs and presidents and generals and mm. senators. There's some psychology... Where of uh, becoming super patriarchs, they want that's what they want to do. That's what Max Weber's yeah. theory was in yeah. in, in uh, spirit of and Protestantism and the spirit of capitalism. Have you read the the, the psychopath test? Do you know about this? Maybe. Where the guy w- was studying psychopathy and he um, was giving the the diagnostic test to various people and he found extremely elevated levels in CEOs and yeah. politicians. Yeah. It's yeah, I mean I I've got the same I mean I'm probably coming at it from a different angle than you do, but I think you know the pathology of civilization is that it's set up in such a way that sick people end up leading it. So of course they lead it in sick directions. Yeah, yeah. You know? So yeah, um so for, you know Freud's helpful here. Right? Yeah. Civilization is discontent. Yeah. I am, that's my work. It's just basically a long elaboration on that book in some ways. I mean, that's really what it's about. Civilization requires repression of sexual urges and some violent urges, but mostly the sexual urges, you know, that is, and it's, he's right. Civilization requires that. It requires repression, which is a form of violence. Right. It's a form of violence. It's both psychological and it's both physical violence, right? right? You know, people get punished for expressing their 
sexual and violent urges right. beginning in childhood uh, in the service of civilization. That's right. what kindergarten is. I always tell my students. That's that, a German word. That's what, yeah. Well, <laughs> well this <laughs> system. Kinder. Hey, our education system was built on the Prussian system, yeah. right? Yeah. Not an accident. So what's this book about? We should wrap this up. It's almost two hours. I'm taking up your wow. entire evening here. It flew. Yeah. Um, this has been a blast. Um, yeah, we'll pick it up because you, you haven't convinced me. Your your Trump argument didn't oh, work. Dude, so. I crushed you. You know it. <laughs> <laughs> I just I don't want to be too argumentative with my guests, especially in your house. We were we were more argumentative a year ago. Um, you can do it. No, my thing about that quickly, um, and I've announced this many times. It's like about what I, I'm kindergarten. No, no, <laughs> I'm definitely against that. Um, no, I love and welcome and encourage people to challenge me on my politics. I, I welcome any political and intellectual challenge. Mm. Any, I want it. I want it. It makes me better. Well, I'm holding it's, back well, because, well, like you, I'm working on a book and I don't want to like throw the arguments out, especially on the air. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm just going to talk it. off the air sometimes. No, I was just going to say this is a separate issue. Yeah. But no, it's, it's when people move into an ad hominem attack and oh, they start going after my character or something. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. then I'm just like goodbye yeah, yeah. fuck you no. and, I, and I actually I mean I have threatened to punch people which I will do <laughs> I will I've threatened to punch like Brooklyn editors in Brooklyn and you know some uh, cartoonist for In These Times last night I was like no man you, you, respond to my you, say yeah. whatever you want about my politics or my ideas whatever you want but if you start talking about me personally and my defects per- Fuck you. Game's yeah. on. Seriously, like, it's over. Civilization ends like, right game's there. Game's on or off? I mean, what, you My, pick a direction. The new game is on. Are you going to, like, ignore them or punch them? You can't You can't have both. Uh, it depends. If I can punch, I will. Um, <laughs> the book. <laughs> the book is, um, it's a history of the relationship between the United States and the world. Mm. Um, so it's, it's about foreign policy, but that's only a part of it. Um, it's also about American culture and how it is spread abroad and, and all the mm. mostly good things it has done. And I'm talking about popular culture. I'm not mm-hmm. talking about formal culture mm-hmm. of repression and civilization. Right. But the stuff that came up from below, like jazz. Right. So like right now I'm looking at like jazz in the Philippines after the Spanish-American War in the early 20th century. Mm. Filipinos were the first Asians... And among the first people outside the United States to play jazz, they really loved it. Really? Filipinos very much identified with African Americans and mm. have, still do. The second, thir- third largest uh, professional basketball league in the, in the whole world is in the Philippines. Hmm. Um, the Filipinos have been called the niggers of Asia for decades because of this. Um, huge in hip-hop. There's a huge Filipino thing in hip-hop, but they started out playing jazz on the ferries, on the boats that went between the Philippines and the mainland of Asia. Right there's all those boats. A lot of Filipinos are, are seamen. Right, they've worked on all those boats and ferries, and they had in the early 20th century they had uh, entertainment, and for a long time it was like jazz players and singers, and they were all Filipinos. So stuff like that, and then it the it sort of ends up becoming subversive of authoritarian regimes, right? Because right. it's sexual, hmm. it's anti-civilization, yeah, right, and liberating, and like Hollywood movies are all about like I mean especially before the code in the, you know, in the twenties and stuff is about like women doing what they wanted to do and smoking and drinking and dancing and all that stuff. Right. Mm. So it's very sort of liberating and subversive. Right. Meanwhile, the United States is bombing the living shit out of people, you know, and invading and conquering and colonizing and, um, and causing this amazing split in the world around what the United States is. So it's like, yeah. if you ask, 
you know, well, you know, I mean, if you go around the world now and you ask people, and this has been done, you know, what do you think of the United States? The answer is, I love it and I hate it, right? It's like, I love Britney Spears, you know, and I hate George Bush, you know. I, <clears throat> I love the new Transformers movie and I hate the Marine Corps. Yeah. Um, I hate the drones, but so anyway, um, so it's that, and I look at the whole history of that. And so right now, like, I'm looking at, I'm looking at Hollywood movies in, in Weimar, Germany, and I'm looking, I mean, the whole thing. And I have a chapter in Renegade on this, which shows or argues that jazz and rock and roll and blue jeans and movies and James Dean really subverted communism from within. Right. Really, really brought down the, the regime from within, made it crumble from inside. Those things were enormously popular in disco, like right. in the 70s, and the Soviet Union and the Eastern Bloc. So it's that argument, and then I and then and then I have the blowback thesis, which is another part of it, which is that which I mentioned, which is that military intervention, generally speaking, has caused people to hate us and want to attack us and do bad things to us. Nine Eleven was planned in 1995 in Manila, the Philippines. Uh, the people who hosted Al Qaeda, who had that planning meeting in Manila in an apartment building, were descendants of the Moros, the Muslims in the Philippines, right, who, were, who were colonized by the United States of America right. beginning in 1899. So that's, that's blowback of uh, 102 years. Right. There's a, I actually found the lineage between 9-11 and that very first imperialist war by the United States. Really? Yeah. Which was in the Teddy Roosevelt administration? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, well, McKinley. The Roosevelt uh. was really gung-ho for it. Uh. So it's 1898. And then they colonized the Philippines all the way through 1946, right. through the World War II. Right. Brutal. I mean, they killed people, and especially the Muslims, the Moros. I mean, they, they set them on fire. They, tor- they, they invented the water cure torture for the Filipinos. The Americans did. Shot them, executed them summarily, called them niggers. I mean, it was just amazingly brutal. It was worse than Vietnam. It was mm. phenomenal. And those people, the, the Muslims in the Philippines, in the southern Philippines, have hated us ever since. Mm. And so in 1995... Some guys from Al-Qaeda hooked up with them and were like, hey, we got an idea about flying airplanes into buildings or blowing up airplanes. And they're like, hey, come down to Manila. We'll, 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 we'll host you. And they, that's where they came up with a plot. It's called the Boyinka plot, which became 9-11 six years later. Wow. Um, so that's blowback, wow. right? Iran, 1953. We overthrew the democratically elected government in Iran in 1953, right? Yeah. Gave rise to this. And then, and then trained the Shah's Savak secret police and the most sophisticated forms of torture in the world, yeah. right? Gave them names of communists that they put into dungeons and tortured and shot in the head summarily, right? Yeah. That gave rise, of course, to this really militant, aggressive, Islamic right. movement, which took control and gave us the regime we know and love now. Yeah. Blowback, right? So that's another part of the book. Um, and then the other, th- and then the third one, and this is the one where you might have most difficulty with, but is that Progressivism, the original progressivism of the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s, the one, the people who instituted social welfare programs and assimilated immigrants through settlement houses and fought for clean food and drugs and fought for child labor laws, were the leading imperialists of the time. Um, And to me, there is a natural link. It's not an accident. The progressives were arch imperialists because if you believe that you are obligated to uplift the poor and the helpless and the oppressed around the world, wherever they are, even if you don't know them and never will meet them, Mm -hmm. you're also obligated 
to get in your tank and go to that right. place sure. <laughs> to eliminate their oppressor. Right. Right. Um, so if you look at Spanish-American War, World War One, World War Two, all of them through the 20th century, you see all this discourse that's coming from, that's very progressive, very liberal. It says... There's these poor, oppressed people over there. We've got to go say That's why we're doing this. That's why we're invading the Philippines. Right. That's why we're going to war in, in Europe in 1917. Um, yeah, and they're, they're still using it. It's so tired. They're still using it in Afghanistan. Afghanistan. Yeah, exactly. The poor women, if we don't, if we don't continue to occupy that place and, and conduct night raids where we shoot people randomly, yeah. those poor girls and women are going to be subject to the Taliban, which may be true, right. but that is, the, that is absolutely the justification for yeah, it. Yeah. So that's the book. Interesting. It's called, it's called Blood and Freedom. When when do you expect to have it out? God knows. <laughs> An honest answer. I'm working on it. Yeah. An honest answer. I hate it. when people ask me that. I, I know, I know. All right. Well, listen, it's been two hours. Thank you for this. I've got to go to Hollywood and do a comedy show now. Oh, so I did one of those. That's why with, I'm looking nervous. With Moshe? Yeah, with Moshe. I did one. It was awesome. Yeah, I great. With Moshe, Greg Proops, and another guy, another comedian. It was because I, I of you. I, yeah, I put him you in touch with us, you. You yeah. hooked us up. Yeah, And it was right. the three of us, and we talked about my book for an hour in front of 110 people or something. <laughs> and it was incredible. Yeah, it's incredible. That's yeah, fun. I, yeah. I like that convergence of. Oh my god! You know, and they're so. It's like being in the presence of a professional comedian. It's, yeah, they're sharp. I huh? mean, I'm funny, but they're like nuclear funny. Yeah, I mean, it's just yeah. amazing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Moshe's cool. Anyway, I got I got to wrap this up cool. and, and go have dinner. All right. Uh, thank you. This is yeah, fun. Thanks. Let's, let's Great. do it again. Total blast. Uh, do you have a website or something? Or yeah, ThaddeusRussell.com. All right. Thanks. Baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you wanna feel. Say what you wanna say. You're gonna die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up Or give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Think about an obligation Running from a confrontation Wondering what we ought to say Smoke alarms will dance into the ground.